We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You like scary movies? Uh Uh-huh. What's your favorite scary movie? Uh, I don't know. You have to have a favorite. What comes to mind? Um, Halloween. You know, the one with the guy in the white mask who walks around and stalks babysitters? Yeah. What's yours? Guess. Um, Nightmare on Elm Street. Is that the one where the guy had knives for fingers? Yeah, Freddy Krueger. Freddy, that's right. I like that movie. It was scary. Well, well, the first one was, but the rest sucked. So, you got a boyfriend? (laughs) Why, you want to ask me out on a date? Maybe. Do you have a boyfriend? Mm, No. You never told me your name. Why do you want to know my name? I want to know who I'm looking at. What did you say? I want to know who I'm talking to. That's not what you said. What do you think I said? What? Hello? Look, I gotta go. Wait, I thought we were gonna go out. Uh, nah, I don't think so. Don't hang up on me. Hello, listeners. Happy New Year and welcome to another episode of Final Review. My name is Andrew Claudio, and on today's show, there are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully enjoy this podcast. Number one, you must watch the 1996 slasher meta horror film Scream, which we will deep dive in just a second. Number two, You must leave a five-star rating and a review on (laughs) iTunes if you haven't yet. That's right. Not reviewing equals death. And then number three, you can never say, I haven't seen Jurassic Park. I mean, it. if you haven't seen Jurassic Park, it has nothing to do with this episode, but just go see Jurassic Park. I found out those people exist too, which is not changed that about your life. I, I, I think they're lost. I think we need to advocate for children of men. Fix that. Oh, so let's do that instead. So at Children of Men, Jurassic Park, and then Scream, the movie we're going to deep dive today, a movie that changed the horror genre forever, and it's going to be given a final review here to kick off 2022 on Rotten Tomatoes, and it is a 79% on 82 reviews. And at the Academy Awards, it got zero, but got decorated at the Saturn Awards, which... (laughs) is well known in the horror circles as like their Oscars. 
Um, and at the box office in 1996, uh, it grossed cumulatively over one hundred million dollars and adjusted for inflation today. That's two hundred and eight million dollars domestically and worldwide. Until three years ago, it was the highest grossing slasher film of all time until Halloween 2018 came out. Joining me, as always, to break it all down, Mr. Bernard Ozrowski. Oz, do you like scary movies? I'll be right back. Oh, uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. We're going to lose Oz halfway through the episode. It's it's official. Turn around, Jamie. Turn around. <laughs> oh, man. It's interesting. I know going in to a movie that I'm to an episode, I should say that the way the pod's going to go, it's going to be more celebratory. It's going to be more negative. My score will probably reflect like that. I'm not as crazy about this movie. And yet I appreciate this movie a lot and what it did for the genre and specifically the meta comments that that come out of this. You really need to be a movie fan in order to enjoy specifically a horror movie fan in order to enjoy all of the references. And I want to say the last time I saw it, I didn't get a lot of the references. And this time going through the franchise, I feel like I got all of them, which made it even more of a cool experience. I start where we always do with two very big questions. The first, what do you remember from the first time you saw Scream? Bernardo Zdrowski. So I saw this movie in theaters. I, I was 11. Nice job as usual, oh, mom. Um, <laughs> uh, um, uh, I really vividly recall the marketing campaign around this movie. I recall the trailer and the commercials defining the rules of a horror movie. And I think that my 11-year-old brain, I was already super, super into horror. I, I mentioned on some of these past episodes, there was a lot of renting of Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street movies. That were part of my upbringing back in the old VHS days. Uh, look it up, kids. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't think it had ever quite dawned on me until Scream was coming out. The the sort of rules and artifice and architecture that make up a horror movie. Mm. So for me, it was a, a bit of a mind blowing experience to to eleven year old Oz. I mean, I guess I understood generally that like the slutty girl dies and the black character dies first, and the sort of like typical things that everybody knows about horror movies. But I, I don't think it ever crystallized to me that these are like the rules and the tropes uh, in the way that I, I now understand. So I, I kind of think the meta element of this opened up my mind. A little bit to to how movies and how horror in particular is made. When Scream Four came out, that was about mm -hmm. a decade ago. I rewatched the series and I, I remembered feeling kind of flat on it. And I, I was I was blown away by how much I enjoyed revisiting, particularly the first Scream movie. Now just absolutely blown away. I I think it's really great. I think it's aged extremely well. I think the meta stuff is is really funny and on point. I think it's kind of a, a fascinating cast full of. It's almost like if you assembled an all-star team of like top 10 major league baseball prospects who all ended up having pretty shitty careers. Yeah. <laughs> and like the, the best one was like, you know, a, a regular player for like 10 years, but you know, barely an all-star is your, your top of it. Uh, but I just think it all comes together nicely. And I think I, I, I've almost become more open to these movies where actors have just this one thing that they're known for. And I, I feel like I've, my tastes have evolved in a way where 10 years ago, I might've said, well, that's a bad thing because, you know, Nev Campbell didn't have much of a career after this or mm -hmm. any of these other folks. 
And I, I look at it now and, and maybe it's much more that they just did such a good job of casting and brought this thing together so perfectly that they found these people who may not be great actors, but fit perfectly in their roles in this film. Yeah, the the, the meta stuff is just it's it's off the charts. There's an entire category dedicated to the meta-ness of this movie. I will full disclosure start this pod with a confession. I'm pretty sure I saw scary movie first. So like I knew the ending. I knew all of the jokes that were going to happen throughout the movie. And so the satire and the comedic bits throughout the movie, when I watched it for the first time, landed more than the horror and the actual slasher nature of the movie, which like there is a lot of that, too. This is a slasher film. People get gutted. People get killed throughout the movie. And yet some of the references are what I enjoy much more than the horror elements, which, look, first time I saw the movie, I want to say I was 15, 16 and had seen scary the entire scary movie franchise before that. And it was like, oh, I know what this is referencing. This is referencing <laughs> scary movie. Right. And, you know, dumb, dumb eventually figured out the order of things. Um, it cannot be expressed strongly enough how much this re revitalized, reinvigorated, recharged the horror industry and where horror movies were. It was really just like sequel after sequel after direct to home release in the mid nineties. I, we have a category for nineties horror and I'm not going to make you do Whoa, the it's, it's, well, I'm not going to make you do the guessing game, but like, the state of horror movies at the time, like they weren't hundred million dollar blockbusters anymore. It was like some slipped through the cracks and they're more crossover things like, oh, this is a horror movie, but it's got Tom Cruise. This is a horror movie, but it's going to win best picture, you know? So as a historian, do you regard Scream in that sense of like there is like a before Scream and after Scream for this genre? I think that's a really good way to to look at it. I, I, I'm not. I'm not entirely sure why horror died off so brutally. And maybe it was that a, a, a lot. Of, well, I, I think part of it is that, and I want to hear your theory. I think part of it is that a lot of the masters kind of lost their fastball. Mm. I think a lot of the the folks who came of age in the seventies are just not making good movies by the time we get to the mid to late nineties. You know, we, we ran into this when we did the Halloween episode, I, I think, uh, there are certainly some questionable career choices in in Wes Craven's late filmography that are are not exactly ideal films. I, I also think there's a, a a moral majority element to horror in the '90s. I mean, there are some movies that are going to come up today that we're going to talk about, which I, I just don't think could be released in America in 2021. So there's a, a film I, I quite like called Last House on the Left, oh. and it is like a <laughs> it, it is a quintessential it is like the core text in the rape revenge mm -hmm. thriller genre and that is just not a, a type of movie that gets made anymore there was a good one a couple of years ago a french movie but other than that the audiences don't want that or at least don't want it in sufficient numbers or at sufficient quality that that directors with with things to say and ideas are, are making them maybe you get some straight to video slag and I really think there may be a moralizing element here. And you, you even see it with the Scream franchise itself. Scream 3 is made after Columbine. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And they tone down the violence massively and lean into sort of comedy. And we'll we'll talk about Scream Three later. But uh, it, it does seem like the sort of ebbs and flows of American pop culture morality probably has a lot to do with what is or isn't allowable in successful horror films. So it's funny you, you said the c word that I was going to try to avoid for this episode because I feel like I've brought up Columbine a couple times in recent episodes and I could see it bothered my friend and co-host Bernardo Zraski and I I was going to try to avoid it but it's really hard to when Columbine kind of shaped where this franchise went after its after its first two movies and look the other c word here is copycat. There are documented copycat crimes that the ghost face mask and costume was used by the the murderers and perpetrators that brings up the question, at least brought up the question at the time, the responsibility that art has in its influence on people that aren't able to separate and compartmentalize things when they see it. And, you know, Wes Craven took some shit for it. This movie and this franchise took some shit for it. And uh, I mean, look, this movie is also inspired by a real life case called the Gainesville Ripper, um, a similar case of someone being of a serial killer in Florida that was going around and killing women of a certain age. And screenwriter Kevin Williamson was so creeped out by this story in this case that as he was walking around in his house alone, he had a bunch of windows that he couldn't, he didn't want to see out of. And as a result, that fear and that tone inspired him to write a screenplay. My theory as to what happened to horror, especially in the nineties. And this is where we've never really had a Gen X conversation on this pod, but you have this very angry decade that inspired art in the 70s. You have the 80s were with excess and everything's great. So like, if it's great, let's do it again. You know, that was like the theory of the 80s. And so what you get in the 70s and 80s of, oh my God, this is scary is effective. And then the 90s come along and it's like, yeah, but why is it scary, man? And the deep introspection (laughs) that Gen X inspired made it difficult to scare them because it was like, I've seen this before. Why would I get scared of that? And those rules like Gen X is the victims in all of the scenes in this movie. So it's as if the Jamie Kennedy character is like important to the, the crux of why this movie works, because it's a reference to the fact that you've seen how this works. You've seen where this the, this story is going to go. You know the rules. So it's winking to the audience that, listen, we know you've seen it done in all these past horror movies. And acknowledging that this all exists in the Scream universe adds to why this then becomes so effective, that you can do a horror movie while acknowledging that this is a formula that has worked in the past. I have some trivia for you before we Ooh, hit start. The, well, I, I want to say I, that's, a, oh, that's go ahead. A, a really smart observation and way to to kind of loop in generational framing. And I, mm-hmm. I, I think it, it it makes an awful lot of sense that the kids who who grew up knowing 80s horror were, are eventually going to age out of it because there's just not there's just only so much you you can do with it. I suspect that the folks who are growing up with what I'll glibly call prestige horror now are, are going to mm-hmm. age out of that in 10 or 12 years and horror will need to shift back in another direction. Um, I think that's a, I think it's a, it's a, a smart uh, observation on the arcs of kind of aging and how film the film industry works. Well, where we are now is 
is very fascinating because technology plays such a bigger like there's there's a different movie about this app is going to kill you. This phone is going to kill you. The computers are going to take over and it's it works as an allegory, but also works as like, well, what's the scariest thing? Oh, this thing that I've put my entire life in in the palm of my hand all of a sudden is there's I download an app and there's a countdown to when I eventually going to die like that is that's more prevalent now in in how they write things. The prestige horror of it. Look, when we did our Halloween pod, it took everything in me not to put Get Out as my number one because I don't find it scary. I find it brilliant. But ask somebody that doesn't look like me and they're like, no, that's very scary. It's a documentary, Claudio. So. <laughs> then answer the question. Same category. Oh, please stop. Name the killer in Friday the 13th. Jason! 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 I'm sorry. That's the wrong answer. No, it's not. No, it's not. It was Jason. Afraid not. No way. Listen, it was Jason. I saw that movie 20 goddamn times. Then you should know Jason's mother, Mrs. Voorhees, was the original killer. Jason didn't show up until the sequel. I'm afraid that was a wrong answer. You tricked me. Some trivia. Do you know what the original title of this movie was? I do. It's Scary Movie. Yes, it was called Scary Movie by, again, writer Kevin Williamson. It was actually called Scary Movie for 90% of production. And then do you know why it was then changed to Scream? I don't. Why was it changed to Scream? So I checked three different references to confirm this. And so I, I'm going to go with it, but I obviously have never had a conversation with Bob Weinstein to see if this is actually it. He is not on record, but he has been referenced. Har- Harvey's little brother. Harvey's yeah. little brother, which is why this being a Weinstein film, I guess you should mention this is Miramax and our new dimension and like the wine is, scenes are it's like their grindhouse subsidiary. So the wine scenes get credit for this movie, but I was thrilled doing the research when they referenced the brothers that Bob seemed to be the one that was spearheading a lot of the production changes. He's a piece of shit too. Let's not, let's not, but him, uh... not like a piece of shit, but not in the, like not as extreme lock, lock, locked away and never going to be allowed back in Hollywood way that his big brother is having said that Bob Weinstein 1995 is when this movie was shot Bob Weinstein was a big Michael Jackson fan you guys make all the jokes you want um 1995 is the same year that Michael Jackson and Janet Jackson's song scream came out and they were not crazy about the title scary movie to begin with and then scream came along and they got inspiration and changed the title Craven and Williamson hated it at first and then later admitted you know what that actually it worked better because scary movie came off as more of a parody than an actual horror movie title, which worked out perfect, which wink, wink. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know why? Oh, do you know where the ghost face mask came from? I know it's a thing that it, it predates this movie, but I don't, I don't know where it comes from. So when they were on location scouting for where to have all the houses and where to film the movie, I forget the name of the Hitchcock film, that it's from 1943. And one of the one of the producers was looking at one of the houses that we used in this Hitchcock film. Oz is looking it up now. It's Shadow of a Doubt. Shadow of a Doubt. Yes. So they were on the set of the house where Shadow of a Doubt was filmed. They don't use that in the film, but on one of the posts in like in front of the house, they saw the the ghost face mask. And this producer then was like, oh, that's actually like super scary. That I wonder 
wonder if that would make a good mask for our film because Williamson, when he wrote the script, didn't describe the, the mask, just said a masked killer. And when Craven saw it, he was like, that's it. That's the mask we got to use. And then they found out that it was copyright and trademarked by a company called Fun World, which if you go to a party city or a costume store, a lot of the costumes in there are owned by Fun World um, for all pre-production. Craven was like, please, Weinstein's, please, studio, get us the rights to this mask. I don't know how to do a different like I see it and now I need it. And the Weinstein's in their creative this is a difficult way to describe this. They're Weinstein's in their way to uh, use their power. Cynical financial self-motivation. There you go. This is why, why Oz is in my life. Um, they created leverage and were able to work out a deal with Fun World that gave them the rights to the costume. And it's now Fun World's like number one product over the last 25 years. Obvious, I think, it would be that this is something that they've benefited from. Uh, there's a lot of trivia I'm going to throw at you throughout the pod. The casting of all this movie is interesting. The good Lord, how close Wes Craven came to not being part of this movie multiple times is pretty cool. Uh, I, I am very excited to deep dive this movie with you guys. The categories we're omitting off the top, the ones that we're not doing today. Kevin Williamson, who I think is best known for Dawson's Creek, right? Oh, I would say Scream, but yeah, Dawson's Creek is fair. Oh, well, that's the other part is there's a lot of TV famous people here. No, yeah. no further than Monica Geller and Nev Campbell for Party of Five. I even like her better in House of Cards. But like there's some TV famous actors in this that work well in this movie. And this is the movie that they're known for. We're not doing horror movie villains. But to ask you, Ghostface ranks where in the Freddy, Jason, Leatherface, Michael Myers rankings? Here's the problem. I, I Spoilers for a series of five movies or four movies, I guess we're mm -hmm. talking about today, uh, that the killer is different every time. So it's hard and often it's multiple people. So in fact, all of them, it's multiple people. So it's hard to um, answer that question for mm -hmm. Ghostface because Ghostface doesn't really exist. I, I think the, the cohesive idea, meta idea of Ghostface is a lot more interesting than the actual murderer's villain itself. So of the ones you you mentioned, I, I would probably put Ghostface last, even though it's a great look. And I, I like that it's less supernatural that Ghostface can be hurt and it's more someone who's fucking crazy with a knife is, is what's effective here instead of, you know, unkillable Michael Myers um and and that ilk. But uh yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna put Ghostface last of the of your field. I'll go a step further. Like I put Pennywise ahead of Ghostface. I put uh, that's not crazy. I put Norman Bates and his mom ahead of Ghostface. <laughs> like there's a lot of there are a lot of horror movie villains that would go ahead of Ghostface when he shows up. I will say it's a Halloween costume similar to Michael Myers. I don't remember a Halloween where I didn't see Ghostface once. You know, and even if not, even if not as like a trick or treater showing up to my house the mask hanging as a decoration somewhere. Ghostface has been ubiquitous to the holiday since 1996. That is, that is for certain. Uh, on Halloween, there were a number of small children that showed up to, to my house uh, wearing oh my Ghostface masks. <laughs> really? I, I'll say I, I, I was watching TV with Logan the other day and my, my three and a half year old son, and there was a commercial for a scream five on and he goes, Oh, 
Daddy, I want to see that. It looks oh, like a, it looks like another Michael Myers Halloween movie. And I was like, fuck yeah. So proud of my boy. Uh-huh. Uh, I, you're, will, you're... I will not be taking him to Scream 5 with me. I was going to say, is, is he coming this weekend? If to, it were on video on demand, maybe. Movie. But OK, OK. <laughs> uh, we're not doing Roger L. Jackson. Uh, Oz, do you know who that is? No, no. OK, well. The voice that they use oh, for the, for the okay. voice changer in the movie um, that you hear. Talking I should have known that, Sunday. actually. Um, he also, for all my uh, Cartoon Network heads out there, if you grew up watching Powerpuff Girls, he's the voice of Mojo Jojo. This is a generational gap here. I don't. There's no way you watched Powerpuff Girls. As somebody who what? used to watch... <laughs> listen... Powerpuff Girls is my jam as well. Shout out to those listening that were my age back when they had their heyday. Mojo Jojo is like the villain in the Powerpuff Girls. His voice is actually kind of racist when you listen to it, but he has a tagline, curses. And that's like, he just says that thing to everything. I've spent entirely too much time on the Powerpuff Girls on this episode. Roger I'm, L. Jackson. I'm very grateful that I grew up on the Batman cartoon. Yes. And the Spider-Man <laughs> cartoon and the X-Men cartoon and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And, and I got Powerpuff Pokemon Girls. and Powerpuff Girls and oh, a I, lot of I, my generation won this. Yes. All, all like four years that separate us. Legit. That's it's that's all it took. And then all of a sudden I get, you know, a much watered down cartoon. <laughs> lineup. Um, opening scenes, which I think scream as a case, although we did this already for Indiana Jones and, and Raiders of the Lost Ark, where it wouldn't have made it anyway. I will just say there's a fascinating artifact about the opening scene that when we get to West Craven, I will talk about that. The opening scene kind of saved the movie is, is what I'll say. That's, that's how I'll tease it. And then last but not least, we're not doing the Scream franchise. So real quick, Oz, we haven't seen five yet. We're seeing it this weekend. Why don't you rank the Scream movies for us? I, I feel uh, having rewatched all of them in the last week or so, I feel extremely strongly that the only correct ranking order here is yeah. one, four, Two, three, which I know is a hot take. And I was, no, I didn't it's, not, like, it's my exact same ranking. Oh, I was saying right, it to Macri last night. I think I like four more uh, than any, more than the other sequels, but like four is not necessarily shot. a good sequel, but like a better than two and three sequel. I, I didn't remember liking four at all. I think it was actually the movie I went to see on my birthday like 10 years ago because obviously I like going to see a movie on my birthday as normal people are like party I'm like ooh <laughs> Taken is coming out um, so I, I remember just leaving with a sour taste in my mouth and maybe it's because you watch it now and you're like oh I know all these people they all have like real careers now and look at this meta Emma Roberts performance with her wink wink famous cousin that she's mm -hmm. super jealous of uh, that that it maybe just didn't work for me in real time and works now I, I, I think Scream 4 is is really funny. It really it works. The intro, the 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 double fake out intro uh -huh. is really good. Uh, Scream Four is is I, I was stunned how much I like Scream Four. So yeah, I think it's one, four, two, three. And three is look, three is bad. Three is three is god awful. Yes, three is god awful. Three, the, I, I found three. Sorry, I found three less pleasant than the like when I watched all however many Halloween movies to prep for that one, and we're watching like that god awful Paul Rudd one. Mm -hmm. I, I thought Scream Three was more unpleasant than the really bad Halloween movies because it like sells out the arcs of all these characters. It turns Sydney into this like sad locked up bag of garbage person. It's, it's like nasty and unpleasant, but not in a way that relates to the kills in the way it like just doesn't understand the characters and the dynamics that work in the first two movies. Scream three is trash. So 
real quick about Scream Four, the the Kristen Bell and a Paquin fake out. I just oh, forgot hilarious. it exists. I want to say the first time I saw Scream Four, it I didn't know who Kristen Bell and Anna Paquin were, or at least the only thing I knew was like Rogue and Rogue and Sarah Marshall. Like I had no relationship to them, so it was like, oh, them. Okay, I guess I guess <laughs> they do movies too. Um, Scream Three has a a cameo of Carrie Fisher, and it's the only thing I like about Scream Three. It's it's easily Agreed. bad. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. How do you gut someone? You take a knife and you slit them from groin to sternum. Hey, it's called tact, you fuckrag. Hey, Stu, didn't you used to date Casey? Yeah, for like two seconds. Before she dumped him for Steve. I thought you dumped him for me. I did, he's full of shit. And are the police aware that you dated the victim? Hey, what are you saying? I killed her? It would certainly improve your high school kill. Still was with me last night, okay? Yeah, it was. Oz, are you ready to do a final review of Scream? Hell yeah. Let's do it. The categories for today, director and potential goat candidate for this genre, Wes Craven, the cast of Nev Campbell, David Arquette, Courtney Cox, and I'm wondering if Oz is going to let me throw a couple other of the cast in there. Oh, we might, please. We're basically doing the entire cast. Matthew Lillard, Rose McGowan, Jamie Kennedy. Uh, we're doing a, a top five for their entire careers here on this episode. Um, well, I think we, we, we focused on the triumvirate because they're the ones who are in all five, that all five of the movies in the franchise. So I, I, as much as I want to shout out Wing Commander, uh, I think we can... Listen, do, I may be asking up. you in a second if I can include Malib- Malibu's Most Wanted. That is the extent I may have to go to get to five on this episode. Uh, film <laughs> shot by Mark Irwin. Uh, film scored by Marco Beltrami. Horror films, it's a repeat category. 90s horror films, slasher films, meta films, 1996 and the 1990s. We start with our director is Scream, a top five film directed by Wes Craven. 
Oz, do you know the almost directors of Scream, the alternative options before Wes Craven became involved? Oh, God. Um, One we've I, actually done on this pod already before. Who have we done on this pod already before? Uh, the director of Spider-Man, Sam Raimi, oh, was okay. approached for this, this movie. I'm not surprised he said no. I, is it is it all big names? Is it going to be like Peter Jackson and a bunch of people who are making horror in the 90s? Not really. Joe um, Dante, maybe? <laughs> George A. Romero, obviously, a big name in horror, um, was, was approached for this. Danny Boyle, who then goes on after Scream comes out to do 28 Days Later. And Robert Rodriguez, who is famous for the Mexico trilogy, um, which is from Dust Till Dong, Desperado, and I'm blanking on El Mariachi. Name. El Mariachi. And um, Once Upon a Time in Mexico. Is that's, that the, that's the other From Dust Till Dawn is like a, it's his, but it's like a side thing. Yes. Yes. Um, so Wes Craven was originally approached by Weinstein to do this movie. He was in the middle of directing, or I guess pre and uh, during production of uh, The Haunting. And he was really trying to get out of the horror genre, because as we mentioned, the horror genre was, was in a, an interesting place. And this is a guy that like tried to get out by doing that weird Meryl Streep movie, which isn't like for him is, isn't bad, but it's like, this is the direction that he's now going to try and go, which isn't his, his strong suit. Um, he then read the script and was like, it's good, but I really don't want to do this movie. Then Drew Barrymore gets attached to the project to play Sydney. And he was like, well, if we're going to put stars in the movie, then sure, I'll sign on to do this movie and, and direct scream. Um, then some things happened during production, Oz. Uh, so first and foremost, he originally wanted the film to be shot in America. And the Weinsteins were like, hey, tax brace, we're shooting it in Vancouver. And when they had their little fight, the Craven won and they shot it. They first looked in North Carolina and then found like a suburban county and, and place to do it in California, which is where the film was shot in Santa Rosa. Um, and then probably the most fascinating thing I saw. So the opening of this movie, the phone call to Drew Barrymore with her boyfriend outside um, where you see she ends up at the end of the vid. Uh, it, it's basically shot like a short film and feels when you're watching the opening scene like this is a complete thing. And that's intentional because early dailies when they were shooting the movie had the producers concerned that this was just going to be another slasher film. This is just going to be another thing that fails, goes straight to video, that is going to be a, a, a box office bomb. And they were considering replacing Wes Craven. So he took the editor and with what they had shot already, which was the entirety of the opening film, and actually like finished post-production, had, had Beltrami put a score together for the opening. And that opening scene was sent to the entire studio as a completed short film and when they saw, oh, so the phone call adds to like the meta nature of it. And he's she's answering trivia questions. That's when they got it. And so that mini short film that he put together saved him from being replaced in the Scream franchise. Something we should be thankful for uh, as far as, you know, where this franchise would be without the navigation of Wes Craven. Is there a weirder outlier movie in any director's filmography than Wes Craven making music of the heart with Meryl, Meryl Streep. Street. <laughs> because that is, that is like really fucking weird. There's nothing about that guy's filmography before or after that suggests he should be making that movie. It's not very good. And it's fucking weird that Meryl Streep is like, because Meryl Streep, she's, she's 
like in her 30 year peak then she's not like mm-hmm. she's some unknown or something like that what the fuck is Meryl Streep doing like <laughs> yes I'm gonna trust the dude who did who did like mutants in the hills like raping college kid movies to make my thing about a fucking music <laughs> teacher like what the hell is, yeah. is that what a weird thing but Wes Craven is awesome yeah. holy shit this guy's awesome is he is he the goat of horror movies I think the answer to that question is yes. I'm a little torn because I I love the Romero zombie movies so much, but Romero has just not a lot else that's particularly good on his resume. So that I I, I definitely you know give give a longing wink towards towards Romero. But yeah, I think it's probably Craven. I I just even if we only look at his career as like seven or eight particularly great movies which is where my rankings came down here and then there's a lot of stuff that's fine um and he definitely has some misses like scream three but uh he's just he he's so influential a lot of the genres of horror that that now exist come from his mind i mean uh, we think of scream as creating this kind of meta horror genre that's not really true uh new nightmare which was his own attempt to reboot the nightmare on elm street movies did a very similar sort of storytelling meta beat that we see throughout the scream franchise he's just a really creative smart guy who is really quick to really iconic horror imagery i think he understands uh, how to make physicality uncomfortable in a way that a lot of directors don't mm. look I, I, in 2021, we, we, a movie like last house on the left where the Hills have eyes just can't, it can't be made or if it would be made. It would be very off the grid. It's just not the sort mm-hmm. of thing that we, we can make and, you know, make a lot of money on and play in a bunch of theaters. And I get that, but with the caveat that we're adjusting for what things were like 50 years ago, man, the scenes in that movie, uh, both of those movies, are so uncomfortably visceral and violent. And uh, I, I mean, it is, there's no, the problem with a lot of these sort of grindhousey rape revenge movies and things like that is that they're, they're a little titillative. They're a little, you know, they're meant to be look at the hot girl sort of mm-hmm. thing. And it's fucking miserable and vicious as Craven does it. And I, I don't I don't know that this necessarily makes it okay from a 2021 lens, but looking in real time, this is not someone who who took some sort of you know perverse glee in it. This is someone who who wants to see how someone responds to one of the worst imaginable things happening to them. Uh, I just think he he's just a very, very smart, very visceral filmmaker who who's just so incredibly self-aware in the way a lot of directors, particularly horror directors, are just aren't. I, I think he's great. Where does Hitchcock rank in this? Hitchcock might be the greatest director ever. So I'm I'm not I'm not counting him as a horror director though. He's an he's an everything director. There's a bunch of directors that if we count them as horror directors, I would put ahead of Wes Craven. But okay. you know, like you know, Ridley Scott or Kubrick uh, are just are just orders of magnitude better. They transcend horror. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. This I is just like asking who's the greatest three point shooter ever, as opposed to the greatest shooter ever. Right. Yeah. I think that's actually. a, a pretty good analogy or just, yeah. you know, who's the best player ever who also happens to be a really good shooter. Like a Ray Allen where, sure, sure, you know, or, like, or to, to trigger some of our listeners or Reggie Miller. How dare you? How dare you mention that name on this podcast? Um, for those who don't follow basketball, just, just know just, that that's that, ignore that, that the last 30 seconds. Just, exactly. Yeah. That entire analogy. Um, I don't, I, I I'm going to turn to you a little bit more for the historical context of 
Craven and his legacy. I'm one of those that last house on the left is not my cup of tea. I am made uncomfortable in the way that I appreciate horror for in that, in that it's movie. A, it's it a is, rough hang. It is indeed a rough hang. And the, it also feels real. It's so it, the low budget the worst part. Yeah. of it works. It, it feels almost documentary and it, it hits me in the same like unpleasant. This is real way that Texas Chainsaw Massacre does and mm-hmm. none and none of the found footage movies do. I think all the found footage movies are chasing the almost documentary and high of what early Craven and what early Tobe Hooper are able to create in those kind of seventies iconic movies. Uh, man, I, that, that movie is very unpleasant, but very good. This is just where we, I, I see your point. I just, I, those found footage movies are more effective. The good ones at least are more effective for me than, than they are for you. I'm just saying our lists are going to look a little different is, is I where I'm going suspect. with this. Yes. Um, Oz, I now ask you, what are your top five films directed by Wes Craven? So, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of thought I was going to go in a different direction when I started this list. I thought I was going to go with, with one of the seventies movies. And I was surprised to find how much I enjoyed Scream and wow. how okay. effective I think it is and how how unbelievably well it's aged. And I, I'm giving Scream my number one spot. I I truly did not think it was going to end up this way, but that's that's why we go back and and re-engage with these movies to do to do these episodes. So my number one is going to be Scream. My number two for all the visceral, miserable reasons I I've already suggested <laughs> is Last House on the Left. Uh, my number three is The Hills Have Eyes, which is kind of like The Last House on the Left. But if it's mutants doing like hill mm-hmm. people, mutants doing the um, murdering and raping. Uh, my number four is A Nightmare on Elm Street, the original uh, Freddy Krueger film, which I think is quite effective in a number of ways. It has some unbelievably iconic imagery, like the blood geyser bed, which is just Fucking sweet. Yeah. It gave us it gave us Johnny Depp. Your mileage may vary on if that's a good thing or not. <laughs> and uh my my fifth one will be after really this was a, a tough call. I came down to to three finalists here, but I'm gonna look at it more for four finalists. I'm gonna look at it more for the the impart. Uh, my fifth is gonna be a new nightmare because I don't mm. think we would have scream without a new nightmare i don't think we would have a meta horror movie like every three weeks on a streaming service we wouldn't have freaky or you know cabin in the woods or these movies that crop or all the fear street movies that a lot of people watched on netflix last year without a new nightmare showing that this sort of meta commentary on horror could exist i'm not sure we'd have the matrix resurrections without a new nightmare (laughs) again your mileage may vary so uh that's my top five so I have him to blame for Matrix Resurrections is what you're saying. Yes. Um, we have some crossover. Uh, my number one is Nightmare on Elm Street. You mentioned the the blood geyser, the bed geyser scene when Depp gets killed through the bed and then the blood ends up on the ceiling. One of the more haunting images made. I mean, look, the effectiveness of that movie is I was just afraid to fall asleep for weeks on end after the first time <laughs> I saw it. And if you see it at the right age, it will affect you the exact same way. Scream is my number two. I think it's his greatest accomplishment as a director. Um, again, revitalized an entire genre. What was honestly dead in the mid mid to late 90s. And the only reason we have good horror movies, I think now is because Scream came along and said, let's acknowledge what we've already done and then turn the page and go forward. And then we're going to get a little weird, Oz. So um, Swamp Thing, 
is going to be my number three. Uh, I'm a fan of comic book movies. I think I've made that clear on this pod. Uh, I dig the the I dig the swamp thing for I'm tickled. I think that's great. Listen, as a comic book movie, I I dig it and I I highly recommend it if people just want to laugh at what we used to consider. Like, listen, as somebody who uh, capes for venom, let there be carnage. You understand why I'm a fan of Swamp Thing. Um, my number four is shout out Eddie Murphy, Vampire in Brooklyn. Um, That's the movie that almost ended his career. It's yeah, so bad. and I think it's hilarious, and I think oh it's God. it's the effectiveness of it works for me. Um, and then last but not least, a movie called Red Eye from That's 2005, good. starring Rachel McAdams and Killian Murphy. Uh, it takes place along a red eye flight. Um, I forget where the start and destination are, but Killian Murphy in a, in a psychological uh, torture film of Rachel McAdams um, has her go along with his his terrorist plot. Uh, it's like the worst case scenario for being stuck on a red eye flight, which is the type of thing. I go to for horror movies. I'm sorry. The, the people under the stairs, last house on the left, the Hills have eyes. They're on lists on the list of movies I've seen. I just, the, the, un, you're right. in that the uncomfortable nature that is effective in that, like I get it and it works. I just, there are certain things that I just, I can't return to, which is why I had to omit those. Things. Uh, I, I'll say people under the stairs. That's not really, that's, that's not kind people of people under the stairs. I actually like people under the stairs. Yeah. That's kind of I a just, comedy though. I wonder if that, I, I, I can't say I revisited that movie and I don't think I'll ever revisit that movie because I suspect 2020 lens is going to make that one look quite racist, but yeah, uh, that's, I, that's, Part of it is why it's it's on my honor list. Yeah, it's on my honorable mentions because I I have fond memories of it, but I I just don't think it's one that I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to. I'll say this: I thought about Scream Four. I, I really did rewatching it this week. I thought about putting it on my list, but yeah, I had to be honest with like what I'll return to for Wes Craven rather than what is effective for me and what uh, what freaked me out for Wes Craven. I think all that's fair. Um, Scream Four, Red Eye, and People Under the Stairs are my are my alternates here. I heard screaming. You all right? The killer's here. He's in the house. No, he's in the house. He's gonna go. He's gonna go. He's gone. He's gone. Whoa, 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 wait, 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 how this category is going to go, but is Scream a top five film? Let's just say from the Scream cast. Let, let's let's give us let's give them context for okay. a moment here. So I, I had the idea to do this to do the triumvirate of actors who are in this entire series because I was looking at the filmographies of each of them and saying, boy, this is going to be really rough and negative. So instead of doing something that's kind of a, a misery grind, and we've had a few actors where we've been like, oh boy, was it hard to get a fifth uh, mm-hmm. a, a fifth. A fifth selection in here. Uh, shout out the Pulp Fiction episode of this uh, this podcast. I, I think Pulp Fiction was actually easy. Well, Uma Thurman, Ooh, obviously. Yeah, was I was gonna say that Uma Thurman was one of the aliens. The aliens, the glaring one because Alien was a tough one for a couple of days. You get past Sigourney, and it's like, man, I got to get five John Hurt movies in. Um, so I, 
I, it's also I, tough when we're just not educated enough on some of these, especially the older actors. But yeah. here we've we've I've seen most of the movies on all mm-hmm. of these people's filmographies and most of them are not are not good um, now. But, you know, in TV work, but we thought it'd be a good idea to 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 put them together to come up with a list. We could be a little more compelled, a, a little more compelled by, uh, but we can only use each movie once. So only one yes. person gets screamed. Well, so. I mean, collectively, they all kind of get credit for Scream, which sure, is why that works too. if it ends up being number one, it's like, you know what? You're well, you were all in Scream. Then it works there. I don't think you're going to object to like me putting a movie on there. I, that's not the main three because of I, how I don't care how dire this is. Um, I, I'm I'm not proud of my like honorable mentions here. They're listen, really I don't know if I have honorable mentions. Oz. <laughs> I don't want to mention Skyscraper because Nev Campbell's oh, in it. But I know that's that movie is Red Noticed. Is it that the is Red Notice really director? Red, oh, because it's got The Rock in it, so we can't. And it's the Red Notice director. It. Is it the Red? No- okay, I think so it's the Red Notice director. So fuck that, that movie, movie. Get listen. It's on my list of I've seen it. Not honorable mentions of I've seen it. Um, some trivia: the cast. Almost Sydney. So Drew Barrymore originally cast to play Sydney Prescott. A scheduling conflict made her have to reconsider. She actually reached out to be part of the franchise after part of the movie after reading the script. And then Craven took it a different way. Do you know the other actresses that were considered for Sydney before Wes Craven reached out to Nev Campbell? I have to think that every single actress between the age of 20 and 26 <laughs> uh, was in consideration for for this part who two I, big ones it's two big ones I, I don't I'm these are actually pure guesses and I should know because I, I listened to the oral history of this mm-hmm. a couple months ago and I just don't remember but Cam, Cameron Diaz maybe no no um, Reese Witherspoon though oh okay there we go that, that's actually for right around cruel perfectly in the, yeah. in the bracket I'm looking at here uh, I Samantha Blair uh, no, Molly Blair, I mean, sorry. Oh, Molly, That's what? Molly Ringwald. So she was approached for it and she said, I'm too old. Like, I don't want yeah. to play a high school student anymore. I'm, I think she was 27 at the time of filming. She was that young in 96. Yeah. Uh, oh, I forget that. 90, yeah. 95, I 95, think. whatever. But regardless, when they were going to cast it, she was like, I don't want to play high school students anymore. I would rather her. play, play an adult. Um, but yeah. And then Wes Craven saw party of five and thought, Nev Campbell would play a good Sydney, and, and I think she nailed it. The almost Gail Weathers. So Courtney Cox actually reached out to the studio saying, I don't want to keep playing Monica the entirety of my life. I can play a bitch and play a, a like a, a mean character in, in your movie. Let me play Gail Weathers. And they were like, no, nah, we're good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so she like had to write a letter to, I think it was Bob Weinstein that then eventually he was like, all right, I'll let you audition. She, she won the part. And I think for the better, cause I think Gail Weathers, that entire storyline. And I, look, there's Monica baggage you bring into it because let's, uh, did you, did you watch friends? Do you, it friends is not a thing that I, I particularly love, but I, I, it, it was unavoidable as part right. of the, the pop culture in that era. As somebody that loved it when it was on, understands and agrees with every criticism that's come out since I discovered Twitter and the universal hatred of that show. I will just say Monica, the TV reporter would absolutely like see a murder happen in her neighborhood 
and then write a book and try to profit off of that. So it actually worked <laughs> out perfect had that Courtney Cox played played Gail Weathers, uh, Brooke Shields and uh, Janine Garofolo, uh, Gar- Garofolo. Garofolo. Yeah, Garofalo uh, were the two almost. Gail Brooke Weathers. Shields? Brooke Shields was approached to play Gail Weathers before Courtney Cox uh, won the part. Um, almost Loomis. Um, originally. A, a uh, shout out to Halloween there. Yes, that's there's a lot of Halloween shout outs to this movie. Um, David Arquette was originally approached to play Loomis. And he asked to audition for Dewey because he thought the the character needed to be a little bit more suave and a little bit younger and that he, he was too, he was too goofy and thought he should play Dewey instead. So props to David Arquette. And in case you're wondering, Oz, they literally cast Skeet Ulrich to play Loomis because he looks like Johnny Depp. Yeah. Well, that's perfect. And he does, and he is a very budget Johnny Depp. mm -hmm. So Jamie Kennedy won the role of, of Randy and there was one other actor um if you if you 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 know the actor probably not by name but by face when you google him after you hear this guys but an actor called Brecken Meyer oh yeah from other, from Road Trip yes from Road Trip I like him in Rat Race um <laughs> so Brecken Meyer was the the almost Randy of it all and then Matthew Lillard um look this is like my one I don't know if it's a flaw cuz he's clearly playing a specific over the top. I just can't stand his tongue. I, every single scene is like overacting. And I, I, Oz is giving me a face. I'm guessing he's your favorite part. He actually is my favorite part of this I movie. I, so I think he's so funny <laughs> in this movie and it's so purposeful. Look, That's there, the there, there, purposeful, are, there are but I think a lot it's of annoying. He's not great in like mm-hmm. wing commander, um, mm-hmm. though he's quite good. There's a, a TV show called the bridge where he plays like a skeevy reporter that nobody watched that show, but he's really fantastic at it. The guy can act, but um, he definitely goes for it here. Which... He, I think it's funny. I think it works. Okay. I think, I think it's almost essential too, because overacting is such a part of the genre that somebody goes there with their performance. I mean, every, every great horror movie has a couple performances where you're like, Jesus Christ, dude, like tamp it down. And you have to have that. And it's the stuff he's the one I think of the rules through his voice. I think of the Uh, the be right back. I think of so much of the iconography of this movie through him. I think of him like freaking out at the end as he's like bleeding out is about how his, his mom's going to be so upset. Uh It's so good. I really, I, I could not disagree more. In fact, if I if I included them, I, he would be my pick if I were going to pick anyone for this for who the, the cast MVP is. Oh, really? OK, look, look, this is it got annoying at a certain point. I think it's really just the tongue, but he got the role because his girlfriend was auditioning for a different either show or movie in the same building that they were auditioning for parts for Scream. And he was just goofing around in the hallway and the casting director for Scream saw him and was like, you know what? I, I have a part in this What's Craven movie that you might be good for. And they auditioned it for him. And by the end of the week, he was cast in Scream. So that's clearly what they were looking for. They got in Matthew Little. See, it's purposeful, which lets me know that this might just be him in real life. Is this character? <laughs> <laughs> um, OK, a top five for this cast screams my number one i'm just throwing that out there okay um Pick now one. Get, who, who gets who gets the trophy oh god um okay real talk who gets the trophy for this i would follow the hell out of jamie kennedy's uh letterboxd like 
<laughs> his narration, I think his like bringing us back to the, the wink, wink meta nature of the movie. I think I would give it to him. But Nev Campbell to me actually is the, the star of the Scream franchise. Like she becomes a final girl. She is the, the, the Laurie Strode, the Sydney Prescott of the movie. It's why I think you have to give it to her with honorable mention to, to Jamie Kennedy, to Randy for, for the two movies, honestly, two and a half movies he's in because for some inexplicable reason, he recorded something that could then be played in Scream 3 to give him credit for being in the movie. He was um, very, very busy in his career otherwise. So there's just, I can't imagine how he made the time. Yes, clearly. Um, okay, so I got to pick four more movies. You you have to pick four more I movies. I have to yes. pick four. You have All to. right. So, okay. There's an I'm, easy number two here. I'm stunned that you're, you're is it really a strong two. From, yeah. the, from the from the oh yeah, I think there's a list easy, of people. An easy number two. And it's a movie I think you quite like, actually. All right, I'll let you say it then. Um I, I'm so. shocked that you don't have Courtney Cox and Ace Ventura as your number two. She is an Ace Ventura pet. It's is it pet detective or Nature yeah, pet Paul? detective. She's in she's in detective? she's in the first one. I'll put that at number two. Then I completely <laughs> forgot that you so the one thing I was gonna say is David Arquette was in a documentary, I think a year or two ago. Um, you cannot kill David Arquette that chronicles the time he went into either WWE or WCW. WCW. And so he won like a title and yes. it like there's a cross hurt. promotion with a movie called Ready to Rumble. So it was a whole the, thing in the it attitude. Like hurt his era. career, right? Like well, yeah, what happened? So I actually I, I'll just out myself that I was a big wrestling fan back then. And been, thanks to having a little boy, I've been watching a lot of wrestling again lately. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, Jamie, uh, Jamie, or Jamie Kennedy, Jesus, David Arquette was the WCW champion working like a coward heel gimmick. A heel is a bad guy mm-hmm. uh, working a, a gimmick. And it was all part of like this broad cross promotion with the release of the movie ready to rumble, which is him as I think like a promoter in the WCW or something like that. Um, but yeah, it was a whole big gimmick. He was later in WWF or E. I don't remember what it was then in, and did like their Royal rumble. Um, yeah. He has like a, a history and a, a respect for pro wrestling in a way that I think is uh, a lot more acceptable in the 2020s than it was mm-hmm. in the 1990s. So he got fucking crucified by critics for his dalliances with, with pro wrestling. Listen, you're, we're two basketball fans and remember Dennis Rodman missing an NBA finals game to go to go be in the NWO. (laughs) Yeah. So I, I appreciate the, the, um, when real life superstars go into the WWE and play themselves. Um, I, I really liked the, the darkness of that documentary, the, you cannot kill David Arquette, how he like got back into shape and what it did to his career and like him and Courtney Cox and what their relationship looks like now. So I'll put that as my number three. Um, I can use the entire cast. You don't, you don't care. I don't care. All right. And you also hate this movie. So in 2012, a movie called Trouble with the Curve, starring Clint Eastwood Fuck you. and Amy Adams and uh, Justin Timberlake and uh, our MVP on, on for one of us on this pod, uh, Matthew Lillard, um, came out. I dig it as a baseball movie. It also has all of the philosophical things that Oz hates about baseball that it's... Uh, Matthew Lillard is the, the prototype... Um, saber heavy GM that is trying to get rid of the Clint Eastwood character. Um, he was right. 
except he, except Clint Eastwood clearly heard because his eyesight's gone that uh, the guy that they drafted number one overall can't hit a curveball because that's how that's how the feel of the game works. Meanwhile, Matthew Lillard uh, has only ever watched baseball through a computer, which you know that's that's just how baseball is now. And now, lo and behold, ten years later, that's literally now there's how, just now there's just no baseball. There's so. just no baseball. <laughs> so, um, my number five, I think we're up to. Um, so Arquette did a movie in the 90s called Johns that I actually think is a very it's very small and it's only like 87, 88 minutes, but he plays like a hustler in Vegas. Um and he, he works works jobs and it is actually very charismatic as like a movie he carried alone. Then there's like a fun one with eight-legged freaks, which you want to talk about a horror movie? I fucking hate spiders. So that movie is actually very effective. Um, those will be my candidates for five. If if I could, Oz, this was the t- most difficult category, and you simplified it for me to where I had like five different characters and actors' filmographies to go to. All these people are better on television, and I'm glad that they have their television success to to go to. That the 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 TV of it all is a big yes. uh, is a big uh, a big issue here. So. I found this difficult, but perhaps a little less difficult than you than did. I did. Yes. yes. <laughs> I, I think my number one is is pretty easily scream. And mm-hmm. since I'm I'm just gonna focus on the triumvirate, uh, it's pretty clearly Nev Campbell for me as the as the MVP of that one. Uh my number two, uh predictably is Ace Venture a pet detective, Courtney Cox. I, I think she's funny. I think that movie is largely funny. I suspect it's aged like garbage, but whatever. Oh boy. My number three is a movie that I actually think is good and I think it's funny and it actually has a really incredible cast, but it's known as the three-way movie uh, and that's Wild Things. (laughs) that movie is is good it is a good heist con movie it's very funny frankly i think there's more of kevin bacon's dick than any than any of the like good nudity that one mm-hmm. might want from that movie uh bill murray is in that movie it's pretty good uh i i i think wild things is fine so Ned Campbell the- for wild things will be my three that's the movie with the pool scene right yeah yeah there's a pool scene and there's a, a hotel Nev Campbell, Denise Richards, and Matt Dillon. Matt Dillon, yeah. Okay. Adventure. Uh, bring back sex in movies. We're getting back say, to it. On brand, Oz. There you go. <laughs> uh, my number four is Eight-Legged Freaks, which you massively okay. undersold. That movie is awesome. It is a really good horror comedy. It's a lot like Arachnophobia, which I think is another good horror comedy about spiders. But this is giant spiders the... instead of more like pumpkin-sized spiders. Yeah, they're like nuclear... Yeah, they they fought like a nuclear power plant or nuclear waste gets. Yeah, it's like a it's like a send up of like 50 movies. I think it's good. I think he's funny and it It has like baby ScarJo in it. One of her Mm -hmm. first performances. I think Eight Legged Freaks is good. But if you listen to our like Placid podcast, you know that I have a big soft spot (laughs) for trashy creature movies. Uh, Am I number five on my list? I had it on my list. The mall scene is fun. I just this is my actual new nightmare (laughs) as is. Spiders are now gigantic. The tarantula sequence. I'm, I'm literally squirming thinking about that movie. Uh, and my my number five is uh, I, I I actually think this is a pretty a pretty decent movie. I know this was like a a really big deal when I was I I don't know like a freshman in high school or something like that. Um, never been kissed. 
for David oh, Arquette, okay. who's one of the two male leads in the film with Michael Vartan, who went on to be an alias. Uh, he's the love interest for, um, I don't even remember. He plays Drew Barrymore's sister and the two of them have good, uh, like good rapport. I just, I, I, I have relatively positive feelings about him from this movie. All right. I'm lying. This is fucking brutal too. <laughs> <laughs> I told you. <laughs> And then my 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 last two are I I have fond memories of Ready to Rumble even though I know it's uh-huh. bad uh, for our cat and uh, a young Courtney Cox is one of the human leads in Masters of the Universe with uh, Gwildor and all that sort of stuff. The you you look utterly perplexed I, at yeah. what Masters of the Universe is. No, I've definitely I think I've seen it. Did, didn't we do a character that? Didn't we do an actor in Masters of the Universe? Um. I the movie or the yeah the movie the movie the, okay yeah I've did never we do, seen this. did we do Frank Langella I don't no I don't. no we haven't no I've never seen Master of the Universe I I think you're mentioning it I've heard of it I've just never seen it so that's why Courtney Cox unfortunately does not make my list for that and she's uh, she's fine she's like the the kid in it um and there's like a, a reboot from Kevin Smith on Netflix that is pretty good oh, okay uh, of it so it's been back in the the public consciousness lately i i think we deserve rough list here medals for getting through this credibly this rough list, list. listen rough you list. both you all get five points for scream that's how you can justify <laughs> five it. points for scream there we go exactly is that you randy and what movie is this from i spit on your garage lose the outfit if sydney sees it she'll flip oh you want to play psycho killer can i be the helpless victim Okay, let's see. No, please don't kill me, Mr. Ghostface. I want to be in the sequel. Cut, Casper. That's a wrap. Randy, what the hell are you doing? Next up, Mark Irwin. Is this a Scream of Top 5 film shot by Mark Irwin? Did you know, Oz, that Mark Irwin was fired from the production of Scream before uh, they were done filming? I did not. <laughs> so, in they were filming the final sequence. They were about like seventy five percent done, and there's actually you could see what he messed up with, or what his crew messed up on in a couple of shots in the house party sequence. And like when Jamie Kennedy is giving the rules, when it goes back to the kids on the couch. They're clearly all like either out of focus or the, the fisheye lens is off. And there's like you could see like the edges are a little squished together. Craven got so fed up and he went to Irwin and was like, this is unusable. Like, I can't use this in my movie. You need to fire your crew. And Irwin said, well, if I need to fire my crew, I'm like, you're going to have to fire me, too. And Craven was like, all right, we fired you from the film and the producers Fired him, replaced him with Peter Deming, who finished the film. Um, it's probably why it, you can catalog it. I don't think Wes Craven and Mark Irwin worked together ever again after this movie. It's weird because they worked together like three or four times before this, mm-hmm. I think. So that that I did not know that. Um, yeah, that's 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 rough. Yeah. Rough break for the guy who ends yeah. up going on to do like scary movie three as part of like his movies. after what, that. You know, what a weird career. I mean, this mm-hmm. guy came out of the gates as Cronenberg's go to guy and David Cronenberg, especially the stuff that he was doing early in his career is like 
masterful visual styling. He's doing crazy shit that no one else is doing. And then this guy is, you know, doing kind of like mediocre horror movies in the late eighties and nineties. I don't really know what happened. And then he's doing like American pie two mm-hmm. and like something about Mary and 10 things I hate about you. He becomes kind of like a, a go-to voice for like teen comedies mm-hmm. and the way teen comedies look. And it's interesting. I, I, it had never dawned on me before, but there is a real visual sameness that runs through all of the movies of that era. I can think pretty clearly about how 10 things I hate about you looks an awful lot. Like old school looks an awful mm-hmm. lot like American pie too. Uh, I, I, it looks like a road trip. Perfect. Bringing it back to Breckenmeyer. Um, that all these things have a real commonality and visual language that had never dawned on me before, but I guess he went from, you know, a, a defining auteur of bizarro horror to what, you know, 17 year olds drinking from solo cups looks like. <laughs> you hit it that he clearly, something happened in his career. I don't know if just the experience of working with, with Craven, just it, it's, I think you can even pinpoint it to scream when, he became kind of the go-to guy for this type of genre. Um, do you know what, do you, do you care about the CSC awards? Um, it's I mean, the, I, I, I know that he's won a bunch of them. Yeah. The Canadian society of cinematographers, they're so like niche and unwell known that there's no like list when you go to their <laughs> website of who's the winners are, you just, if you want it, you get that recognition, but you mentioned the Cronenberg, um, collaborations. He's won that award four times, the CSC award for best cinematography. The curious thing is like, it's like a, it's like a badge or making honor roll or Dean's list where you can win it for multiple movies in the same year. I think you just have to, it's like a hall of fame type of thing where we voted and all of us think you deserve recognition for this movie. So like there's four movies in the eighties that he won the CSC award for best cinematography for. And then after that, there's no prestige recognition and there are elements of scream. Ironically, a movie he got fired from where really appreciate the cinematography, the tracking in the opening scene of Drew Barrymore through the house really sets the tone for like she's alone and terrified the the chase sequences throughout the garage throughout the house when sydney's first attack throughout the final sequence um the 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 entirety of the movie i think the the horror elements the cinematography really helps in creating that this is a chase movie as well as like having the comedy and the the meta humor involved in it so a movie I think he really did a great job shooting. I actually think he should get credit for as well as recognizing it probably altered the course of his career afterwards. Wow. Um, yeah. Okay. So uh, to get Your to top five, Mark here. Irwin, go ahead. So my first is going to be a movie called Scanners, which you probably haven't seen. It's a very weird David Cronenberg movie. But what you probably know it for is the meme of the guy's head exploding, the gif that everyone uses on Twitter all the time. That comes from this movie. Really? Uh, yeah. So huh. that, that's something you'd probably know. Um, my next, uh, we're going to keep with the Cronenberg here because the Cronenberg stuff is good is Videodrome, which is this crazy movie about a guy who happens upon a TV station, which kind of has mind control elements, which shows all this like ridiculously violent 
stuff. Uh, it's it is a crazy bonkers movie and quite good. My three is going to be The Fly, which mm. again Cronenberg, and this is Jeff Goldblum turning into a um, human sized fly for an entire movie. It's I think one of the best examples of the body horror genre. It's quite well lensed. I, I have really I saw this way too young and have really like upset visceral memories of like. Jeff Goldblum, like pulling off his fingernails and stuff that just feel very upsetting. Thank you about now. Uh, and my number, <laughs> my number, I, I'm going to knock Scream down because I thought uh, Scream was going to score for me. And now it's not because if you didn't finish the movie, it, it doesn't count as good as yeah. I think some of the early stuff is. I, I didn't know that. So it was going to be fourth, but now it's going to be not on my list. So fourth is now going to be, this is a weird choice, but bear with me. There's something about Mary. <laughs> There's something about Mary. Is, it's actually well shot. There's a lot of physical comedy in it that's tracked well. It's easy. The, the compositions are good. The color work is good. It's like bright and cheery in a way that I think came to define a lot of 90s comedy and the Farrelly's in particular. I, I, I think something about Mary is good. So something about Mary is going to be there. And I know it's problematic and bad in 2021, but whatever. Uh, and my last one is going to be a movie which... I am not sure that this is a good movie, but I do think it's a pretty well shot movie. They they tried to do the trick that Star Wars did and brought in Irvin Kershner to direct the sequel. Uh, and I'm going to go with RoboCop 2 mm. here. Uh, it's it's obviously not as good as the Verhoeven original, but it is well shot and effective. Uh, so I'm going to go RoboCop 2 for my fifth place. Boy, do we have some differences in our lists. Um, so f- full disclosure, there's like... That's, have, that's I healthy. Well, I haven't seen Scanners. I, I unfortunately haven't seen it, so I can't I can't put it on my list. Um, I also haven't seen RoboCop two, so I wonder if after having seen it, I would I would potentially put it on. And look, I don't know what's problematic. I haven't seen something about Mary in years, but the same the, disturbing the, de- the depictions of mental health are perhaps not. Oh right yeah, that's actually a good call. The the disturbing way that I find Last House on the Left, I also find the zipper sequence. So <laughs> that's just as haunting and never ever want because there's when you first see something about Mary, you're like, they're not gonna show it. Right. Oh my God, they showed it. Okay. Never need to see this movie again. Um I was six years old in 1994. And as we've chronicled throughout what I loved in the 90s, the good kids sports movies just stick no. have <laughs> a special place in my heart. And the fact that Mark Irwin was the, the DP for D2 Mighty Ducks means that he's responsible for the greatest hockey upset in maybe hockey history. Yes, I'm putting it above the U.S. beating Russia in 1980 at the Olympics. Um, when uh, Keenan shows up and... Um, <laughs> Uh, knuckle puck time ties the game after falling down five one against Iceland after two periods. It's just it's iconic. Uh, the entire penalty shot sequence at the end, I legitimately felt like it was game seven of the Stanley Cup finals. Or how about this? The gold medal game at the Junior Olympics. Uh, yeah, the D2 Mighty Ducks. I will say I've been very afraid to revisit this because I know as an adult with a different eye, I'm going to view it through a different lens and be like, oh, no, this sucks. Oh, no, I hate it. I hate it. And I, I refuse to. I refuse to. I choose to remember it for the masterpiece that my my 
young teenage eye thought it was. So you want me to really ruin it for you? No, no, no. Okay, sure? ruin it for everybody else. Go ahead. All right. So they they fired Emilio Estevez from the uh, TV show, the Mighty Ducks Game Changers TV show, because he refused to get vaccinated. So, oh, I don't uh, care. I don't care about 2021 version of. Oh, okay, okay. No, I, I don't care you don't that. look at him and be like, "Fuck that guy." No. Or maybe it's like Gordon, in, maybe it's that he is Gordon Bombay. Yeah. <laughs> like we hate Gordon Bombay in this movie. Exactly. What I choose to look at is that he got popular. He ended up on the cover of magazines and forgot what hockey was all about. And you can even just look at it like that's the version that didn't get vaccinated. So he became Kyrie. That... Exactly. See, you see my point. Uh, screams by number two. Um, this might just be from a limited selection for me as far as things that this guy has done. Mark Irwin. I really was impressed by the filmography and then uh, by the by the cinematography of this movie. And then I did the research. It was like, oh, you're not really fond of this movie, are you, Mark Irwin? Oh, really? Um <laughs> So the fly is also my number three. I'm going to be sticking with some sports seeds, sports sequences going forward. Kingpin's my number four. It's the only movie I think that's ever outside of the big Lebowski. That's made like bowling look cool. Um, (laughs) And you want to talk about movies they can't make today. Um, There's a website named after this movie. Uh, Number five is a movie called the ringer. Starring Johnny Knoxville oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, with Brian Cox of succession fame. Uh, man, could this script not be written the exact same way it is? Uh, I just full confessions. I know you're a big fan of the franchise. I was not. I missed the entire jackass m- moment. OK, like saw a lot of the movies after YouTube existed. So like, oh, all of these stunts, like people do this on TikTok and YouTube now. So I missed the entire Johnny Knoxville phenomenon. And look, you can say what you want about like the acting and the jokes in that movie and how problematic that is now. My first time viewing The Ringer, I thought Johnny Knoxville was like an okay athlete. And I think a lot of it is in the cinematography and how it makes him look like a former track star that was able to compete in the Special Olympics. Even saying it out loud is very uncomfortable and disturbing, but it's a movie that I at least go back to now. It does have a nice heartwarming ending, although he should be in jail. Okay. Those are my top five Mark Irwins. I think that's delightful. Yeah. Also, <laughs> I, I, I think the movies of Jackass are far more special than the, the TV show mm-hmm. of Jackass. And I genuinely think that they're good movies. Unironically, I like them. Jesus Christ, you don't know the rules? Have an aneurysm, why don't you? There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a horror movie. For instance, number one, you can never have sex. Big no no! Big no! Sex equals death, okay? Number two, you can never drink or do drugs. No, the sin factor. It's a sin. It's an extension of number one. And number three, never, ever, ever under any circumstances say, I'll be right back. Because you won't be back. I'm getting another beer. You want one? Yeah, sure. I'll be right back. Next up is Scream, a top five film scored by Marco Beltrami. Um, Scream was his first feature film. Um, He had never scored an entire feature film. I mentioned that the 13-minute sample of the oak being seen that Craven put together for the studio was the first thing that Beltrami was given to do. That was basically his audition for the movie. And they liked it so much that they hired him for the rest of the project. 
Um, fellow composer Michael Carlson called his score one of the most intriguing horror scores composed in years. And one final note from the studio, which you hear it throughout the movie. We've already done Halloween on this show, but Sean, uh, Kevin Williamson during the writing, when he, he was writing the script was listening to expert excerpts of the Halloween score for inspiration while he was writing the script and told Bill Trami he wanted to include portions of the Halloween John Carpenter score in order to um, in order to to throughout the movie. So um, pretty, pretty, pretty important film in Beltrami's career. Um, where does he what, what did you take away from doing the, the Spotify deep dive of Beltrami this week? My Spotify deep dive is always my favorite thing. I was blown away by how weird his resume is. He has done so many strange genre films, some of them good, some of them bad. But he actually is pretty, a, a pretty creative uh, music writer. I, I, I think there's really, I, I think there's something here. I, I, I'll say that my selections ended up a little on the stayed side of what he does, but I think like, I don't know, mimic the, the weird Guillermo del Toro monster in a museum movie. Like that's a quirky, interesting score. That's just pretty atypical stuff. Uh, I think he he's, and I think an odd guy, I, I would have to suspect in real life. I don't know anything about him, but uh, yeah, I think he's, I think he's a pretty good, a pretty good composer. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's my turn to go first. It like, is your turn. So. I I mean, I got to stay on brand here. My number one for Marco Beltrami is Logan from 2017. We didn't do Beltrami as a category. I I agree. You agree. So there you go. The specific scene where the the score, I think, shines the most is after uh, he gives Xavier his medicine for the first time. And it's quiet. And Xavier's then all alone in their little... A thimble that he's now being <laughs> hidden in, and uh, you get the sense of loneliness that, that Xavier feels, and the the this also as a viewer of this this franchise and of this character, you're realizing how far away we are from that Professor X that we see in Episode One, and how like the roles have shifted, and who's taking care of whom. Also, just the entire ending sequence with Logan and his daughter, and then the the cross turning into an X is pretty effective Um, across the board. Logan is just always going to receive very high ratings for me. So Logan's my number one screams my number two. And for how widely highly regarded this movie is across the board. um, There's two specific, I forget the names of the the pieces, but there's two specific things that get a lot of praise. And it's the, the, it's it's a, a theme set for Sydney Prescott, which then makes its way through the other four. And it's the first time that you see the news report about her mom when they're recapping what happened a year earlier. And it's, it's a piece of music that plays while she's looking out the window. And it, it really humanizes the character as more than just the final girl, but someone that's gone through some extreme trauma and now sets up for why she makes some irrational decisions going forward. It's because she's experiencing some PTSD throughout the movie. And then just the entire score during all the chase sequences i think it's it's effective um so my next three are important in the sense that the movie doesn't have a lot of dialogue you don't really remember a lot of the script and it's why the score has a lot of work to do so a quiet place 
is my number three, a movie literally where you're not allowed to talk. And the score is doing a lot of heavy lifting in the sequences where you hear music, the silence and the sound uh, effects of that movie are, are probably more effective, but I go to the the sequence. I mean, spoiler alert for Quiet Place, the John Krasinski death scene when he signs um, he signs to his daughter and then makes a noise. The the score really highlights that moment as a key moment both for Krasinski and his his daughter's um, uh, uh, character in in that scene and in that sequence. Um, my number four is The Hurt Locker, um, the Catherine Bigelow movie that won Best Picture in two thousand eleven. Um, I guess 2009, um, the look, I, I could pick so many different suspenseful moments throughout this movie. I'll just pick the first one, the Jeremy Renner defusing that bomb in the beginning of the movie. Uh, you are on edge for the entirety of it. And there is a hum from the score in the beginning that you feel all of the tension that you're supposed to play it along with the silence and the, the sequence that's playing out on screen. And then my number five, might be, I don't know if you think this movie's good or not, but there's a, a shark attack movie called The Shallows. Starring that movie. Blake, uh, what's up? I like that movie. You like that movie. Okay, good. The, the Shallows is a 2016 movie starring Blake Lively. Um, she goes, she's trying to get over a breakup, I think it is. Oh no, she it's either a breakup or she got uh kicked out of med school. Oh, that's it. It's there's a med school element to it because she does surgery on her shark bite. And it's like, <laughs> Oh, I got kicked out of med school. And yet this, apparently I'm good at doing surgery on myself, which is why I'm able to heal my wound while I'm stuck on the only piece of land that's showing. So I can hide from the rock of hide from the shark. Uh, she's swimming in the, the middle of like shallow water and a shark attacks her and her two instructors. Um, she's able to escape to this patch of land that sticks out of the water and the shark is just kind of stalking her throughout. And the entire movie is a survival movie of her, you know, all the problems that she thought she had are now minimized by the fact that it's literally life or death now. And I think the score underplays the tension very well throughout that, that sequence in that movie. So those are my top five for Marco Beltrami. Uh, we have the same number one, Logan. My number okay. two, I, I think Logan showcases that he's really good at Westerns. I, mm. I think that there's a certain contemplative, uh, understated nature to the work that you need in Westerns. You have to leave You have to leave space for the soundscape or lack of sound to breathe. And it's, frankly, it's a lot of what you see in The Quiet Place as well. Uh, that That silence as part of your scoring is important that knowing when to slow down your score is important. Not everything can be, and I love him, John Williams bombast mm -hmm. all the time, dictating your emotions. And I think understated scoring is sometimes more difficult to do and certainly more difficult to win awards for. But accordingly, my number two is going to be 310 to Yuma, which if you listen to our Logan podcast, mm -hmm. you know that I'm a huge fan uh, of that movie. I think it's one of the best modern Westerns. Uh, my number three is going to be Scream. I think everything you said about it is right on. Uh, I think it's also like, what a debut. Go from like short films that no one's ever heard of to to one of the iconic horror movies. Good stuff. Can I piggyback on your Western comment hit, real quick? Hit me. So apparently Beltrami decided to intentionally disregard conventional horror movie scores and approach Scream 
like a Western. And there we there's go. a lot of Morricone as uh, my pronouncing that name. Yeah. Ennio Morricone. Yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of that um, that he took influence from and like scored the theme for a lot of the different characters like he would a Western character. So you're spot on in, in picking up. There we on go. That. Uh, my number four is going to be another Western. Uh, it's a movie that no one has ever seen or heard of. I think it was Tommy Lee Jones's directorial debut. It's a little Western called The Three Burials of Melchides Estrada, which uh, is a good, small, artsy, kind of slow and contemplative Western that I actually think is worth watching. But there are there are a lot of movies, so mm-hmm. you, you can survive without <laughs> this one. Uh, and my number five, I wanted to try to pick up on the quirkiness that I see in a lot of his scores. He works with Guillermo del Toro a lot. Um, you see it in Hellboy and Mimic, but I think those are pretty interesting scores. I think what he does in even Warm Bodies, that zombie romantic comedy is sort of interesting. Uh, I, I But I'm going to go with for my my fifth spot, Snowpiercer, the Bong Joon-ho uh, mm-hmm. Arctic train that's the only thing left on Earth movie. Uh, that is a fucking awesome movie and a great score. So uh, Snowpiercer. Fifth, fifth place. So my honorable mentions, the movies I just threw out there. And yeah, I'll echo Hurt Locker and Quiet Place as well. And Red Eye. Red Eye is a good score. Red Eye is a good score. Um, World War Z is one of my, um, is one of specifically the first 20 minutes of World War Z is actually like you, you don't stop for the first 20 minutes of that movie, which is really effective. Um, Ford v. Ferrari from 2019. Great movie. Uh, a, a lot of the racing sequences are like the, the sound effects from what you look at the sound design for the actual cars, but then the actual race that's going on and the emotional aspect of like Bale trying to win for, for, for Ford is highlighted by the score. Then I got to do it. Um, so I've mentioned trouble with the curve, a movie that, uh, Fuck off. Beltrami did, uh, but I'll also mention venom. Let there be carnage. <laughs> <laughs> a movie that Beltrami also scored. No, Jamie. Uh, watch out. Watch out, Jamie. You know he's around. You, you know. Oh, oh, there he is. I told you. I told you he's right around the corner. Jamie. Jamie. Jamie, look behind you. Look behind you. Turn around. Behind you. Oh, turn around. Behind you. Behind Jamie. Jamie, turn around. Oh, God. Next up, so we've got four categories that all talk about the genre that Scream finds itself in. Uh, the first is a repeat category. I think we can get through this quickly unless things have changed. Is Scream a top five horror film? Um, we did this for Halloween. Oz, your turn to go first. What were your top five horror films? Let's scream on it. So I struggled a lot with this because I wasn't sure what counted or not then. And I'm still not really sure what counts or not now. And I mm-hmm. think that this is going to be sort of a, a, a shifting target each time. Uh, I'm not going to count Jaws as a horror movie. Right. I'm Jurassic not, Park also not a... That, that, that's not yeah. a horror movie. I'm not going to count Silence of the Lambs as a horror movie. And I, I'm going to leave Alien in as a horror movie okay. this week. Uh, so I'm going to go Exorcist 1, Alien 2... Psycho 3, 
The Shining 4. Uh, and we're going to uh, do a little switch here. I think I had Rosemary's Baby on last time, but I'm going to put Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, in my fifth position. Uh, listen, we do a lot of... Oz and I record a lot, so um, I, I don't remember if this is exactly what you did last time where you, throughout the conversation of Halloween, were like, you know what? I need to put Texas Chainsaw Massacre in, but I think you did, which anybody that's listened to all these episodes, please go back and let me know if that's something that Oz definitely did. Um, my top five doesn't change at all. Um, Hereditary is still my number one. The Ring, Thanks Mom and Dad, is my number two. The Conjuring is my number three. It from 2017 is my number four. And then The Shining or The Blair Witch Project would be my number five. I would be lying if Oz poking at the entire found footage genre didn't make me reconsider putting The Blair Witch even higher so I could just throw it in his face that I have it as my number five. But I have to be true to myself and say that The Shining is... I mean, look, The Shining... I think I even said this last time that it's like... I saw myself disappear on screen because I understand writer's block and the <laughs> struggle for creativity. Um, but I think the shining will be my number five. Um, but then we have nineties horror film. So a scream, a top five nineties horror film. I hinted at this earlier. So as these are the 10 most successful domestic box office movies from 1990 to screams release date. Okay. Silence of the Lambs, which again, not really a horror movie, has horror yeah, elements, horror but one best picture. Interview with a vampire, not a horror movie. Tom Cruise, also, like that's a yeah. Tom Cruise movie. That's a romance with so vampires. Those that's are no the, more a horror movie than Twilight. Those are the only two movies that grossed a hundred million dollars. Now, this is the 90s, so it's different, different metric, different price point for tickets, but those are the only two deemed a box office success. <laughs> Bram Stoker's Dracula is number three at 82 million. Wolf, the Jack Nicholson movie, is number four. Flatliners is number five. Arachnophobia is number six. I like that Fre one. Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare is number seven. Sleepwalkers is number eight. Child's Play 2 is number nine. And the movie I quite like, the original Candyman, is number 10. This is the top 10 for horror for the majority, for like 60% of the decade in the 90s. This is what you had. And we're coming wow. off of the 70s and 80s where you could get 13, 14 deep before you get to something that like people don't like. There isn't like a majority opinion that people like said movies. And hard is big bad. business in the 70s. Yes. Alien, The Exorcist, those were those were top gross Halloween. movies. Well, Halloween yeah. wasn't even, uh, we had to adjust for inflation, but Halloween wasn't like a like top 10 or it was top 10. It wasn't like a, a box office, you know, surplus, yeah. but it was, it was and still like a success, you know, and a ton of just insanely profitable things. So like last house on the left costs like $10,000 to make mm -hmm. or something like that. Same with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. They're, they're made for pennies. So even if they make a couple million dollars, those are, those are massive successes. Yeah. There's also like one-offs in here, like arachnophobia. There wasn't, I mean, maybe there was an arachnophobia too that I don't know of, but it's like either a sequel, Freddy's Nightmare or Child's Play 2, or like we're making something prestige that everybody's going to go see because it's going to win Best Picture, like Silence of the Lambs. Um, yeah, there's just the state of move for, of this genre was kind of dead. And then Scream comes along and the last 25 years have have been different as a result. The The only thing I'll say that... The only thing I'll say that 
I, I don't put a knock on Scream for this, but like there is a hint of the torture porn era that we get in the late 2000s that Scream is partially for. Um, I, I Again, I don't want to knock Scream for it, but I think we just got a little more gratuitous with what we show and the, the Rob Zombie of it all and the hostile franchise and some of the later Saw movies as well, um, which... Again, I've I've said on this, but I it's just not my cup of tea. Um, but look, I, I just going off of the list we just went through, like a lot of the movies we're gonna mention as far as our top five for '90s horror happened after Scream came out. You know, um, it's my turn to go first too, which is why Scream was my number one for '90s horror. It's it's kind of an easy one to be honest for what it did to the genre and to the industry going forward. So my only movie that came out before um, Scream, that's a 90s horror movie, that'll be my number two, has one of the most disturbing scenes that I've ever seen in a movie. And I was lucky enough to not have it spoiled for me before I saw it. I was just told, watch The Exorcist 3. Don't go, don't know anything about it. That hallway sequence, man, the first time I saw it fucked me up. And even like on a rewatch... I'll see it and be like, oh, okay, I need to watch it from the corner of my eye because I know that that sequence is coming. Um, So The Exorcist 3 will be my number two. And then on brand, Blair Witch Project, my number three. I Know What You Did Last Summer, my number four. And then I owe a thank you to my co-host, Bernardo Zrowski, because if Lake Placid is technically a horror movie... I'm going to make yeah! it my number five. I quite enjoyed it, that movie. I've like had it for rental for like an extra 48 hours after we recorded that bonus pod. And I was like, I kind of want to put it on while I'm editing Nick's film school clips. So I think I'm going to do that actually. Oh um, yeah. I have a, I have a very close honorable mention that, that Lake Placid replaced, which I'll talk about in just a second. Oz, your top five nineties horror films. My number one would be silence of the lambs. If it doesn't count, but it's mm-hmm. we're throwing it in the thriller back in the thriller bucket. So that's not going to count here. So my number one is scream. My number two is the sixth sense. Uh, my number three is the Peter Jackson film, the frighteners, which is perhaps arguably on the comedy side of the ledger, but I think is quite good. Uh, Michael J. Fox. Uh, mm-hmm. my number five is, uh, this is sort of debatable about if it is a, uh, if it's a, horror movie or a thriller, but I think it leans more thriller than Silence of the Lambs. And that's Misery, which is, that's <laughs> a good movie. It is. Where, I, just, where, I understand where, why you call it horror. <laughs> yeah. Where, where Kathy Bates plays like a crazy person fan who captures an author and like forces him to, to uh-huh. write for her. Um, so Kathy is Bates, somebody going to kidnap both of us and tie us up until we do the episode the movie that they've always wanted us to do on the pod like you need to do a final review of said movie and they're gonna break our legs if we don't do it right away i mean honestly i'm gonna get my legs broken if they want us to do the snyder cut that'll be (laughs) that'll be the end of me those would be the crowd to do it i will i will not give up i will not do that um otherwise we're pretty flexible here Absolutely. We're still taking suggestions. Absolutely. Uh, and my fifth will be uh, Hideo Nakata's Ringu, or the original version of The Ring, which I think is both a very effective horror movie in a vacuum and also a very important one because it really set off the wave of 
what we call J-horror um, of Japanese horror movies in the late 90s and early 2000s that engage a lot with technology um, and the ways technology is changing changing the world and changing our lives. And while there are a lot of uh, not so good US remakes of these movies, like Pulse comes to mind. There's just one missed call. There's just a whole bunch of very, very good uh, Japanese horror movies in this era. And this is the this is the forerunner of that genre. And yes, it's telling that I had to go to uh, a Japanese film I don't really love to fill out my 90s horror list because 90s horror is rough. Mm. There is, I have a bunch of honorable mentions that are stuff I don't particularly love. The one I, I do want to throw out there is perhaps more interesting or maybe retroactively more important than I think is great is one you already alluded to is Candyman. That's my number six. That's oh, yeah. going to be my number five until Lake Placid came along. I'll say I feel a little frustration with the entire franchise on mm-hmm. some small level because I, I I think I like the Nia DaCosta movie more than most, but I also felt kind of catfished by it because they made a big deal of like, this is a reboot and it's fresh and totally different. And then I went to see it and they were like, this is intimately connected to stuff that yeah. happened, not just in yeah. the original, but in the fucking sequels. And I, I felt kind of lost for parts of the movie. So, uh, but it's really, it's interesting. And I think has a lot of important things to say on race. Yeah. Um, the... The Candyman sequels are not good. The original Candyman, I quite adore. And I did like the full binge getting ready for the the Nia DaCosta sequel. Um, The commentary around the Candyman from last year, I enjoyed, I think, significantly more than the actual movie, which is where I, I, I think I gave the movie a respectable score because the the actually what they were overall trying to say and what Candyman is and what it stands for. I appreciate, whereas the actual movie is is kind of lacking as a, as a horror film. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Corn syrup. Same stuff they use for pig's blood and carry. <laughs> Surprise, Sydney. Oh, no. What's the matter, Sydney? You look like you've seen a ghost. Why are you doing this? It's all part of the game, Sydney. It's called Guess How I'm Gonna Die! Fuck you! We already played that game, remember? You lost. It's a fun game, Sydney. See, we ask you a question, and if you get it wrong, you die. You get it right, you die. You're crazy, both of you. Actually, you prefer the term psychotic. We'll never get away with this. Oh, no. Tell that to Cotton Weary. 
wouldn't believe how easy he was to frame. Watch a few movies, take a few notes. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> Next up is Scream a top five slasher film. Um, what are the rules that you need to follow in order to survive a slasher film? Okay. Uh, you, you, no sex, no drugs, no fun. Don't go no alone. <laughs> uh, don't, so there's don't go alone. Don't are, drink to excess. Uh, there are three that are specifically mentioned in that Jamie Kennedy sequence in the house that leads to the Matthew Lillard line that you love. Um, you can never have sex. Yep. You can never drink or do drugs. You can never say, I'll be right back. Um, earlier in the film, he points out everyone is a suspect. I would add you um, could never be black to that. No, list. That's the other part. You have to be white. Um, you can never ask who's there when you're picking up the phone or answering a door. Um, you can never go outside to investigate a strange noise. And then those are the, the seven or eight that I pick up from this movie and watching every horror movie after you've seen Scream and heard all those rules laid out and the self-awareness of the genre pretty spot on if you ask me um that these are the rules of how to survive a horror movie also be a girl i think because the whole there's no final guy i don't think in a lot of these horror movies it's always a final girl i think right i i mean there's a few that play around with the genre but yeah it's final girl yes that's what i thought um all right your top five slasher films so uh, we've we've done this category before, or at least we we talked about slasher films generally. Mm-hmm. I think on Halloween, and I'm going in a totally different direction this time than what really? I what okay. I had, what I had done in the past. Uh, so we're, we're gonna we're gonna start at the top with the the granddaddy of them all, and that's Psycho, which I think is the most revered the the goat here. I just it, it counts to my eye. I know it doesn't have a body count like Scream, but it, there's I'll, a I'll do what you did earlier. Same. Okay. There's a yeah. There's a there's yeah. a slight, um, almost titillating nature to the kills, which I think is an important part of slasher movies. So my wife hates slasher movies because she really doesn't like that you're supposed to enjoy the kills, at least on some deep seated level. It really doesn't work for her emotionally. Um, but you know, there's I'm a darker person than she, <laughs> um, so I think that there are uh, some appealing elements to that. Um, so yeah, Psycho, my number one. My number two is probably not going to be a shock. Uh, it's Texas Chainsaw Massacre, mm-hmm. which I think is just fucking masterful and really kind of upsetting. And Leatherface really creeps me out. And I just, I just think I hate red states even more now than I used to. <laughs> and this, I just think that all the red states are like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh-huh. Uh, sorry for any red state. I, say, I, I appreciate Oz, you. Just no one in your life. Next time I drives through South Carolina, all you have to do is like rig up a chainsaw and all yeah, of a sudden it, in my, in out. my fucking Subaru. It's perfect. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, my my number three is going to be Scream. I think Scream is really good. I, I just it's it it aged better than I ever imagined it would have for me. So Scream will be my number three. Uh, my number four. We're going to go off the grid a little here, uh, as I sometimes like to do, and we're going to go with Dressed to Kill, which is Ooh. a which is a oh, Brian dang. De Palma movie with the great Michael Caine. It is it's basically about a. a stripper or prostitute who teams up with a teenager to solve a murder. Uh, It's the usual sort of Brian De Palma is very interested with uh, sexual violence and perspectives of killers and and things of that nature. And I think Just to Kill is really uh, effective 
storytelling. It's a very exciting, very well-made movie. I think, you know, there's a whole like hive of people who adore Brian De Palma, which I'm not sure I would I would put myself in necessarily. But this is this is this and blowout are the two that you should really look at if you want to learn about Brian De Palma, who you probably best know for the first mission impossible. Uh, and my fifth, I am torn back and forth. I kind of want to do something fun here and say freaky because I just love that movie so much. I yeah. saw some of it again the other day and I just, I think it's so funny and so well done, but I'm going to go with one of the classics and say a nightmare on Elm street for my, for my fifth place here. That's what the Palma is known for. You think it, for quality stuff for mission what? impossible, not the untouchables. Oh, untouchable. Sure. Untouchables and mission impossible would fall in the same. Bucket. I think Mission Impossible okay. is probably a bigger movie. Untouchables, though. It is, yeah. I just contender. Like, it came later in his career, though. Like, this is a guy who did a movie in the 60s that then a movie from 1996. I was just curious if like what he regarded as some of his better stuff. He also did a movie like last year that was really bad with Jamie Lannister in it. Um, oh, Domino? This, oh my God. Yeah. Yes, that's really bad. Yeah, that I think the studio like took away. You know, there's there's probably a case that Carrie is actually his biggest movie, well, the Stephen King adaptation. Uh, I, don't, he, I know you don't like the movie, but I, think I know you're going to say fucking a, Scarface. But. There's a case. I don't even love it. I don't worship that movie the way some people do, but Scarface probably. It's very important. I agree. That's, yeah. will be known for. It's also, for it's Ryan. so iconic to hip hop culture and, and just sort of uh, a, a sort of aesthetic and vibe of Miami life that I, I, I can't ignore the impart of Scarface, even if that movie is seven and a half hours long. So I'm went on this mini Brian De Palma detour because my list is super boring. Um, <laughs> um, it's like all the it's all the hits. Psycho's my number one. Halloween's my number two. Nightmare on Elm Street's my number three. Friday the Thirteenth's my number four. Look, I haven't I've given Scream more points than I, I've like reached for points here. Um, I really adore the Candyman from 1992. There are some elements of that movie. The the white woman going to the projects for her own benefit commentary that's that's happening throughout that movie and then man just the 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 research i was doing for the need a costume movie that came out last year it's interesting that we just brought the movie up um going into what worked in the first one what didn't work in the two sequels um and then like even as a horror elements i've talked about my relationship with bees and how terrifying i find their their swarming nature and my traumatic experiences growing up with them and like candy man's pets or bees so unfortunately i have to go there scream is a very close number six and i think it's because the next category we're about to talk about will be where i highlight scream for the meta nature rather than the horror or the slasher sequences of it although look Seeing Drew Barrymore's guts just like spilled out in the opening sequence was super effective when I first saw it. And then super effective every time after. It's like, ooh, okay, here we go. We're zooming in on this. Hello? Oh, Stu, Stu, Stu. What's your motive? Billy's got one. The police are on their way. What are you going to tell them? Peer pressure. I'm far too sensitive. I'm going to rip you up, you bitch! Just like your fucking mother! You've got to find me first, you pansy-ass mama's boy! Fuck! Uh, Fucking hit me with a phone, Dick! Fucker, where are you? Ah! Ah, you fuck! Did you really call the police? You meant your sorry ass, I... My mom and dad are...
Next up is Scream a Top 5 Meta Film. Um, do you have a favorite or favorite couple of meta moments in this movie? Uh, I think the rules is really the the iconic one for me. The the, the general Kennedy Lillard spiel mm. about the rules of horror was such a you know brain breaking moment for little kid me that that that's clearly it. Though I I think the the intro and how the intro has evolved over the course of the next few movies is also a, a big part of the self awareness that makes this movie quite effective. Did you also get it wrong? When they he asks who's the villain in Friday the Thirteenth, and you said Jason, I absolutely did not get that wrong. Oh, you said it's Jason's mom. Of course, I know that. Jesus. Okay. Wow. Excuse. I one hundred percent got it wrong, and every time I've seen this movie, um, so I got a list of some meta things that I wrote down. So in that Drew Barrymore sequence, when Ghostface brings up Nightmare on Elm Street, that he likes those movies, and she said the first one's really good. All the sequels suck, which famously the only of that franchise that was directed by Wes Craven was the first one. Until a new nightmare. Until a new, until nightmare, a new nightmare. But at the time, mostly he was poking fun at the rest of the franchise. Um, Wes Craven is in this movie. And he is a cameo as a janitor named Freddy, who is wearing the exact Freddy Krueger outfit. Um, Linda Blair, famous for the... Uh, Exorcist plays a TV reporter in this movie. Your mother sucks cocks in hell, priest. That is, that is a line from The Exorcist. That's 100% an effective line in that movie, too. Uh, you mentioned Loomis. The, there's literally a character called Loomis in the movie. I mean, who knows? Maybe this was... In, in a lot of Halloween movies. <laughs> maybe this was uh, Loomis's grand, grandson all these years <laughs> later. You never know. Um when Sydney and, and Skeet Ulrich are fooling around for the first time, and he says that we had a rated R relationship to an NC-17 relationship, and then sometimes it feels like we're just edited for TV. And then she says, will you settle for a PG-13 relationship? And then flashes him. That, I felt, could be meta in the sense of like, this is what our genre has become. We used to test boundaries now we're just going straight to in-home release and we're lucky if we get something like we'll settle for just like a solid PG-13 at this point. I think that's it. That scene is really interesting and, and sort of Craven's um, late career sexuality or lack thereof. The screen movies are actually, despite like the cheering of fake nudity and the stab mm -hmm. meta franchise there, there's no nudity in these yeah. movies. There's, there's, very little sexuality. It almost feels like on some level it's a it's a corrective in his own work to the vicious sexual stuff he depicted yeah. early on. And I, I know generally that, that people just have a very high opinion of him, that everyone who's worked with him has, has left saying, like, what what a kind old gentleman, <laughs> not the sort of person you would think is is making these movies, as opposed to some of the other horror masters where you're everyone's like, that's a weird fucking guy. But yeah. Craven, everyone's like, what a sweetheart. Well, the last the last meta thing I wrote down. Well, okay. Matthew literally points to like these days, you got to have a sequel poking fun at all horror franchises. Every horror movie, yeah. Literally. Oh, we did one, but we're doing six more. Uh, when Jamie Kennedy, the actor is watching Halloween and Ghostface is behind him and Kennedy's yelling at the screen, Jamie, look behind you talking about, <laughs> Laurie Strode. Yeah, and, and he says, Jamie, look behind you. Jamie, look behind you. And it's literally what's happening on screen is us telling him. I 
I've found a lot of that super clever. Um, the meta nature of this movie is what I appreciate the most. And it's why it's my number two in top five meta films. Look, this is, again, staying on brand here in 2022. Tropic Thunder is my number one. And it was like very clear number one when I realized how meta that movie is. Um, Spoiler for the rest of 2022. We're doing a special movie for Oz when it comes to his birthday. You'll know why when we do that movie, why we're doing it. Uh, It also corresponds to Sundance. So it does. uh, It does. Um, I may be nominating this movie in August when I have a birthday is all I'm going to say. I think that's a reasonable trade. There we go. Perfect. Um, Scream is my number two. I think you're going to say this movie, but Adaptation is my number three. Um, This is the Nicolas Cage movie about a struggling writer where um, he's literally referenced. His character is named after the screenwriter of this movie. It's it's very difficult to explain because it it sort of crests upon itself. It's about the struggle to adapt. Uh, White Oleander and the sort of like stacking meta elements of the story that the writer Nicolas Cage is telling in his head as it comes to life while he's struggling with the book. It's really it's it's fucking nuts, but it's so good. And his name in the movie is Charlie Kaufman, a yep. movie directed and written by Charlie Kaufman. So it, it adds to that meta nature as well. Um, it, there's a lot of being John Malkovich involved in in the, the tone and the feel of that movie. Um, my number four is The Cabin in the Woods, which ironically, one of the supporting characters in that movie wrote the and directed one of my, I can't even say favorite, but one of the more effective movies I saw last year. Um, more on that when we do our best of 2021. Fran Kranz, uh, baby! Yes, Fran Kranz. I really hope you get recognized by a, an academy that has no idea what to recognize. Keep so hoping. Far, I'm, I'm hoping. Believe me, I'm losing that said hope, but we'll see what happens. Um, Cabin in the Woods, the um, self-reflective uh, movie about the machine of horror movies and the tropes. It's, it's almost as self-referential as Scream. Almost, though like from a mechanical standpoint, from the studio perspective of like what you need to make an effective horror movie, why characters make certain decisions that are stupid and certain decisions to move the plot along rather than the smart ones. Um, it's also, you know, it's funny too. It's an honorable mention for me, but that, that's a yeah. movie that it took. And unfortunately I don't think we'll ever do an episode of it, but it, it took years to be released because the studio didn't fucking know what to do with yeah. a movie that is essentially making fun of the grinding gears of the studio system. It's the type of thing that would come out on Netflix today and do huge business and like break film Twitter for three weeks. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it was just, they just didn't know it. I mean, it, it helped because Thor came out and that got Hemsworth out yeah. there and all these shelved Hemsworth movies like that. And red Dawn all of a sudden came out of the, uh, came out of the woodwork, but uh, no, Kevin in the woods rocks. Yeah. hundred percent. And then my last one. So I have, I have two fun ones. Um, Spaceballs and Last Action Hero, but I decided to go a little more art house with this. Um, In 1961, Federico Fellini did a movie that got him nominated for Best Director. And um, what? (laughs) What? (laughs) This is great. What? Do yeah, it. So, so Do 1960, it. Uh, he did a movie yes. that got him nominated for Best Director called La Dolce Vita. And one of his follow up projects while he was experiencing writer's block was a movie called Eight and a Half, 
in which he literally wrote a movie about a director struggling. I'm so proud. (laughs) Thank you. Um, A movie uh, about a director struggling to follow up a successful movie with his next project. It's a movie about a blockbuster that he's trying to write, a science fiction blockbuster. It really highlights some of the I did it once. Can I do it again? Nature that a lot of creative minds go through. Um, look, I as somebody on a very smaller scale that creates things, I appreciate that type of, of story. I look, Oz and I had a heart to heart about my level of criterion connection. I get it. This is like an hour after I referenced Trouble with the Curve as one of my favorite movies. Um, but like one of my big blind spots and has become a New Year's resolution for me is like the 60s are just a, a decade I don't have a lot of knowledge of. And I've made like a list of 100 that I'm going to go through on Letterboxd and just try to catch up on. And this getting to go through eight and a half was like, oh, wow, that's actually like something I'd, I'd appreciate and go through. So um, eight and a half will be my number five. I, I'm fucking <laughs> delighted. I, I honestly, I, I thought about eight and a half and then I thought about like how I define a meta movie. And I wasn't sure if it's more of like a struggling with the art or a meta movie. I think it's a totally reasonable choice. It, it could have been my number one choice. It's not on my mm-hmm. list because I didn't count it, but it's totally fair game. What a pull. Yeah, what a thank pull. You. Thank Claudio you. dropping Fellini. Yes. <laughs> oh, hell I yeah. I, get, I think I get all of my cinephile points back from wow. behind the scenes. It's you, a are movie forgiven, you are forgiven for trouble with the curve. Yeah. I'm so, oh, for I'm with the so curve. psyched. <laughs> There's a movie Oz is looking forward to that's playing at South by Southwest that he was like, oh, yeah, hey, so do you want to do you want to watch this? Like we might get inside access. And I was like, do I lose points if I have no idea what you're talking about? And he that was that like, movie yes, is ev- everything everywhere all at once. I'm very excited with Michelle Yao. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Fuck. Yeah. I'm so yes. proud. Um, <laughs> right, I, too am, I, too, am going with a douchebag me movie with the first choice. Uh, and that's going to be Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard. Which oh, is okay. uh, it's William Holden who came up recently in our licorice pizza episode because that's the inspiration for the Sean Penn character in that movie. Uh, but it is a it's sort of a, a comedy. It's a noir. It's a Hollywood story all brought together of silent film actors trying to make it in the talkies. And it's set in the industry. There's a whole bunch of famous people who play themselves. Cecil B. DeMille is in this playing Cecil B. DeMille. Hedda Hopper is in this playing Hedda Hopper. You know, Buster Keaton is in this movie playing Buster Keaton. So it's set within the artifice of Hollywood with Hollywood people playing themselves with with Holden uh, and um, what's your name? Gloria Swanson playing versions of their real life personas uh, in this story. It's really good. It's actually really funny. I, I think this movie ages extremely well uh, as this sort of, you know, I think it might be one of the best movies of the 50s, if and when we ever do a 50s movie on this, <laughs> and Lord. I can rank that decade. Uh, my number Keyword, two... You can rank that decade. I just started the 60s right now, dude. We're getting there. So <laughs> like that's there. our 2023 resolution. There you go. <laughs> uh, number two for me is going to be adaptation for all the reasons mm-hmm. you said. It's fucking great. Uh, my number three, I I struggled a little with what to do here because there are a lot of options. I did think about Scream all the way as high as three, but for three, I'm going to go with The Player. The Player is, a, mm. I think, 1992 yep. Robert Altman movie with Tim Robbins and a whole bunch of 
actors playing themselves in small parts, including I, I think Bruce Willis is one of them, if I'm remembering correctly. Yep. But um, it's basically about a Hollywood film executive who um, kills a screenwriter. And everything that happens as a result of that, Tim Robbins is very good at it. It's very funny. Altman is kind of a, a an acquired taste, but is a very, very important voice in 70s cinema. I mean, really, I, I think he might be the the underrated or underseen master of that era of filmmakers, because you never hear Altman in the conversation with Coppola or Scorsese or, or those sort of names. And I, I think he very much belongs in the conversation. So the player will be my three. Uh, I like Scream, Scream's four. And five, okay. I'm going to pick something. I, I thought about Cabin in the Woods. I thought about a movie that I think is very effective, but I don't like called Funny Games. Uh, which is honorable mention. We'll talk about it in a second. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll leave that for you then. I thought about spider verse. Uh, if you haven't seen no way home, fast forward 10 seconds, I thought about the last 45 minutes of no way home as Mm -hmm. the sort of very meta self-referential to 20, 20 ish years of superhero movie making as an interesting notion. Um, but I settled on stranger than fiction, Mm. which is the, I think very effective, funny, movie uh, where Will Ferrell plays a um, basically the character of an author's narrative and he can hear the narrative happening around him. Uh, This is a very good movie by the director, Mark Forster, who started out strong and had kind of like a (laughs) 20 great outcome on his career after Quantum of Solace. That guy's just not done, not done a lot of good things. Um, But yeah, I think that Stranger Than Fiction, very good, very interesting, very funny movie. So you mentioned funny games, the there's a moment in the movie where one of the characters winks at the camera, literally winks at the camera. And from that point on, it's hard not to look at the violence that is happening on screen. And actually it's a rough hang. Well, like look inside it, like, Oh, they're like, they're actually asking us, why are you enjoying this? And that that's why I appreciate funny games for what it is. I mean, also, spo- can, it, can I spoil oh, funny ahead. games? Cause no one's yeah, ever going to see it. it. Uh, and there's two, there's an American version with Naomi Watts, which is pretty mm-hmm. decent too, but it's the same exact movie. Uh, the movie ends with you thinking that the heroes have won and gotten away or like the, it's a home invasion movie that you yeah. think that the family is going to survive. And then one of the villains gets up, pulls out a remote control and rewinds the movie so that they could go back and, and win the day. It's, it's yeah. pretty fucking dark and weird and fucked up and is meant to be teasing at the sort of titillative nature of horror or slasher type things and what we get and enjoy out of, out of um, torture type scenarios. But I think it's, it's more a rough hang than an amusing one. Okay. Guess I remember the safety that time, you bastard. Careful. This is the moment when the supposedly dead killer comes back to life for one last scare. Not in my movie. Next up is Scream, a top five film of 1996, which once again allows me to play my favorite game on this show. Oz, what are the top five cumulative box office? We'll go we'll go uh, worldwide with this. How's this? For 1996, this actually makes it easier. I know two of them with some certainty because they're going to show up or maybe three of them show up on my list. Uh, So Independence Day is very clearly number one. Yes. Mission Impossible one is in the mix. Is number three. The only other one I'm reasonably certain of is Twister. Number two. All right. Um, Bro, everybody saw Twister in and, 1996. Yeah. And now I'm 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 hurting a little bit here. Star, One is Disney. Star Trek. 
No, oh, Star what's Trek is I actually don't see Star Trek. First contact. Oh, first contact. I don't see it, but I'll get to it in a second. It probably um, it's probably better on domestic. Star Trek never makes money overseas. So Hunchback of Notre Dame is number. Oh, five. yeah, that's a bad one. Mm-hmm. And then The Rock. Oh, I love The Rock. What? Yeah. Oh my God! How did? <laughs> I four. think I just let the R rating scare me off because. Mm. Uh, Spoilers for my list. The the rock will be mentioned uh, momentarily. And uh, yeah, I love that movie. Star Trek First Contact is number 21, by the way. Damn. Yeah. So look, overseas, this is kind of cheating because it's it's adding an entire world of box office numbers. But 33 films made at least $100 million worldwide in 1996. The, the mid to late 90s, when you started to see with the box office numbers coming in that the, the, the hundred million dollar plateau was easier to, to eclipse. Um, even, even so with domestic, it's still like close to 15, 16 movies that made over a hundred million dollars. What, um, what's, what's scream like 130 scream million, is, something like that. Scream is one Oh five domestic and then one eighty. uh, hold on. And then one seventy three, um, worldwide total. Cause um, scream is like a, a legs miracle. Oh, screams, yeah. the, screams like a, a greatest showman or something where it kind of a shitty opening and it runs forever. Well, this is where you're stepping on the trivia. I was going to say, Oh fuck. Sorry. Oh no. So like variety literally called scream dead on arrival. Um, the first weekend of its movie. And then lo and behold into, this is probably the crazier part about scream. Uh, Christmas season release yeah. came out in December of 1996. It came out like the weekend before Christmas. Yeah. So it's like the same weekend that Matrix Resurrections came out this year is when Scream hit theaters in 1996. Um, so it's a similar type of release. Uh, do you know the film? This is this is should tell you where horror was and what Scream had to overcome. Um, do you know the film that was number one at the box office the weekend Scream came out? The English Patient? No, close. It was number three. It was number two. So Scream wasn't even number two. It was number three. Um, Beavis and Butthead Do America <laughs> was the number one film at the box office that weekend. And Scream, again, Variety reports it dead on arrival. All of the calculated risks of Craven and the gore. They thought that they completely fucked up. The December release date, which the Weinstein said we want to go with there rather than going with a Halloween release date because they were like, well, horror, horror fans want to watch something in December too. So we'll put something there and kind of run ISO. And they thought they completely messed up. And then over the course of 1997, Scream was in theaters for eight months after release because of the word of mouth aspect of it. It was one of those movies where you were literally told you got to go see Scream and it led to the success we've been celebrating today. It's such a bummer that this simply can't happen. No. anymore like it's it's not even with like greatest showman that's like a the, probably the best modern example of a movie that opened soft and legged forever but it's it just the the way theatrical contracts work you have to commit so many of your screens to you know the batman or dr mm-hmm. strange 2 or no way home or morbius or whatever to even get the movie that there isn't unless you have those giant 24 screen theaters and those are dying off outside of major cities uh you you simply there's just not space and it's frankly it's hard for the theaters because everything is so is so front loaded that you're better off having like a sixth seventh and eighth no way home screen than you are having a screen for come on come on or you know west side stories third weekend or something like that which is so so fucking depressing <laughs> so 
to that point, first of all, um, I thought that what happened with Get Out could give us hope. Like I had no plans to see Get Out the weekend it came out in 2017. And then the 100% Rotten Tomato score made everybody say, well, let me go figure this out. And then it became one of those movies where you were told you got to go see Get Out. You got to go see this movie. Jordan Peele, like he got one. He nailed it here. And it stayed in theaters for like four or five months after that. It gave me hope that that could still exist. The problem now today on the other side of the pandemic is like, it would instead be like, you got to watch this on blank. Like Ted Lasso had that effect where everybody was said, oh, you got to watch Ted Lasso. It's on Apple TV. Subscribe for like five bucks a month. And that's the nature of how we do the word of mouth going forward. Adults just don't go to movies anymore. It's, that's it's the, the reality if, of it. Like I, if you're I over actually, 35, you don't go to the movies. Statistically, well, they just they've not come back from the pandemic and it doesn't seem like they're ever coming back. So to that point, I little life update. My dad is like my pastor. Hiram was behind the pulpit on Sunday. He is out of quarantine and COVID free. Um, we are going to be doing Christmas this weekend. And the plan for when we we're going to do Christmas three weeks ago, my yearly tradition is we do presents. We watch a basketball game. We go to the movies. And then because my mom's Jewish, we do something Jewish and we order Chinese food because it's the only place open. Um, we we're going to try and emulate the same thing. The movie my dad wanted to see American underdog, this Kurt Warner movie already out of theaters in Suffolk County on Long Island. So like yep. if a movie like that can't even survive three weeks, it, it really tells you, as I said, like adults over a certain age, aren't going to the movies. I almost wonder though, if it can be spun as a positive, not for the theater industry as a whole, but I saw, I rewatched Encanto and I, I see it now. I get it. Oz. It is beautiful, which makes me wonder if I should have just wait to watch it at home when there weren't a bunch of children in a theater running around making noise and the theater experience making it so unpleasant that I missed everything that there was to enjoy about that movie. So you, I, I you wonder if you have to go to kids movies at night. As someone who now has kids, the only way to see kids movies is to go at night, like late at but night. I, you'll have a paucity of children. But I was able to watch it at home with a really nice sound system and a nice screen. And I know probably not the way it was meant to be watched. It's not as good as seeing that. I mean, that movie is beautiful. That is, I have, it a, is. I, you'll be shocked to learn. I have a, a, I've put a lot of time into my color levels and everything else. I have as, as about as good a setup as you can get at home in terms of like the quality of the picture and everything. That movie looks like a fucking dog on my system compared to seeing mm. it in, in RPX. It's, I think it's maybe the most beautiful animated movie ever made. So, uh, uh no theaters are better. Stop giving in, I, stop giving I, in to the dark side. God damn it. I hate to say it, but it's like the theater. Dude, when I, when I, I depend see a moon, on, I, Go ahead. When I want to see a moon crush the earth. I want to see that in a giant fucking theater with a bunch of morons around me. I know I want those morons to turn off their <laughs> fucking cell phones, but Thank otherwise, you. Thank you. <laughs> I want to watch. I want to watch the earth die in fucking IMAX. Please. So that's different. That's a blockbuster. I want to see every crowd pleaser in a theater. Like I, I, the, the, the animated movies are blockbusters. They've always been blockbusters. They've always think, done huge business. And I think the theater experience that you're talking about that you enjoy is Spider-Man. Like that's the defense. Spider-Man No Way Home. Getting to see that with everybody. The key moments, like we're still avoiding spoilers a month later, the key moments that happened in the third act, like the crowd pops are what I remember about seeing that movie, which I'm curious seeing at home without the crowd 
if it's going to be as effective when it finally hits on demand. Um, I still like for the, the critical thinking aspect of it, I almost wonder if I will enjoy Come On, Come On or Red Rocket or some of the smaller things at home where it could be just me and I don't run the risk of guy in row two row in row in front of me is texting throughout or snoring. You know, like you're, you're too dependent on people that just don't know how to act in a movie theater anymore, which that, I don't want to say I'm going to the dark side. I just I almost wonder if I'm putting up a white flag and it's like, you know what? Like, I kind of would rather just watch West Side Story at home at this point. I am so sad to hear you say that because, <laughs> like, just... you know, I go to the theaters as much as I can. And and like I'm a hundred. I will, movies I, I will say guy. I just. I, I I feel like I I fought a losing battle at this point. And Kanto I, seeing it at home, like with Rosina, was like, oh, this is beautiful. What did I miss? Oh, I remember my theater experience. I'm vaxxed, boosted, and 95, so I'm going to scream on opening mm. night. But uh, yeah, I um I'm worried about what the audience might be like at mm. at scream and and the ways it may negatively impact my my viewing experience. So uh, I I I take your point. I, mm-hmm. I don't I don't think you're crazy. I worked very hard to cherry pick my like when I would go to movies and where I would go to movies to sort of maximize what when I lived in the city, I would go mm-hmm. to like I would go to like Angelica or Landmark Sunshine, the sort of, you know, like the nicest art theaters in the city. But Sunday morning at the 10 a.m. showings, because it would be me and like the octogenarians who don't even have cell phones at the theater who'd be sitting there reading their newspapers, waiting for it to start. That tickled me. That was like my happy place. But yeah, I, you go to like the Times Square AMC, which I know you mm. go to a lot. That place is like a fucking cesspool. There's just yeah. there, everyone behaves like a fucking child in that place. Well, uh, are we doom here, and gloom about the movies? But I think it's just the reality of like we're talking about 96 where going to the movies was an event. Everybody seemed to go to the movies this year. And we're in a time where the at home experience might actually become I mean, look, we're talking about a year in 96. There were no cell phones, so there were less distractions. You went to a movie and watched it. Now you got to be involved in the conversation. You got to be texting people while you're at the theater. Oh, this movie's great. Like the amount of cell phone footage of Spider-Man No Way Home and the reaction. I'm glad they caught it so I could see it, but also put your fucking phone away in the theater. So that was that was, again, our as Oz mentioned, our weekly state of the movie industry that like I I did the same thing you did for West Side Story and I picked a theater time that was like, okay, there's nobody in this theater because everybody's like afraid of Omicron and I'm going to go see it. And I was able to have one other person in the theater, which is a sad state of mind for that movie. But I was able to finally see it by myself with basically amounted to a private screening. If I have to do that for every movie going forward, then I would much rather just wait for an at-home experience, which is an unfortunate reality that I think we're all facing. Um, All of this to say, all of this to say the top five films of 1996. (laughs) Um, You could feel the, the tension of our, this dying industry around us as we, as we do this thing. Um, My number one is, is just, it's as easy a choice as, as I could get for a year as Fargo. Um, Fargo, Fargo. Yeah. It's a, I think it's a masterpiece. I think it's, We'll certainly do a Cohen's movie, uh, hopefully sooner rather than later. Um, I it'll certainly rate for me there. I I uh, I, I don't want to get into my 1990s overall list right now, mm-hmm. but I I think that Fargo may feature on that as well. Fargo easily my number one. My number two, 
I, I think 96 is very bad. Uh, this is mm-hmm. really soft year for me. There's not a lot good on the art house side. There's not a lot great on the blockbuster side. Uh, my number two is the rock. Uh, oh, I, wow. Okay. To me, I like Michael Bay, um, especially early Michael Bay, like transformers for Michael Bay. Not so good, but like early Michael Bay, there's some good shit there. I really like this. I like Armageddon. I like bad boys. I'm not embarrassed of those things anymore. I've decided to embrace the chaos. But uh, yeah, The Rock is going to be my number two. The the Nicolas Cage, uh, Sean Connery, uh, reverse invade Alcatraz to save hostages movie. It's fucking great. Uh, my number three is going to be Scream. I I did not expect it even to rank until I started this rewatch and looking at ninety six. And Scream is my number three. My number four, and and maybe it's because of my nostalgia was scratched by catching up on the. Uh, not great soap opera that I keep watching. This is us, uh, which had a Jerry Maguire <laughs> focused episode. Uh, Jerry Maguire is going to be my, uh, my number four here. Mm-hmm. I, I, I really like Cameron Crowe. I would like to have more Cameron Crowe movies. We haven't had them in a while because he doesn't like the fact that people don't like we bought a zoo and Elizabeth mm-hmm. down and that truly awful music show he did on Showtime. Uh, but whatever. I miss Cameron Crowe. I love Almost Famous. I mm. I love Jerry Maguire. I would like more Cameron Crowe in my life. And my number five, this is this is less a reflection of my particular love of this movie or this franchise and much more a reflection of my deep antipathy about this year. It's what I think is either the best or second best Star Trek movie. And that Star Trek First Contact is going to be my my fifth here, which is the one with the with the Borgs and going back in time to man's first encounter with the aliens i think it's it's good star trek um yeah that's where i'm at so this might lead to a a spoiler for next week's conversation but i'm i guess i'm a little stunned that a certain movie isn't there but i I, it it honestly wasn't it's closer to the back of my honorable mentions to the front wow it's on my honorable mentions but um yeah or is that two weeks from now or whatever? But yeah. the thing is next week or whenever, whenever Moonfall comes out, that, yeah. that's the when we're doing this movie. Um, so I'll mention it then. Uh, I was able to get, I'll just say this, Scream's not on my list and credibly not on my list in that I had to take an honest look at the five movies I put above it and to who I am as a person, I can't put <laughs> any of these movies behind Scream. I just can't. And it's why what I do for a living in like producing content for a basketball team, um, it all started when I was watching cartoons growing up and like was into Power Rangers and action figures and whatnot and like didn't even know what the sport was. And then my mom took me to a movie in 1996 called Space Jam. And this superstar named Michael Jordan that I had never heard of before was rescuing my favorite cartoon characters from a lifetime of captivity from the evil monsters. And look, Space Jam New Legacy did a lot of damage to my affection for the original Space Jam. I get it. It's a kid's movie. Uh, I think Space Jam New Legacy for me forever solidified the GOAT debate is MJ1 LeBron, not number one. Um, And it's why Space Jam has to be my number one. I didn't know what basketball was before I saw this movie. And I think very close to after that movie was when I watched my first basketball game. And it was watching Michael Jordan defeat a team 
And it was like, oh, my gosh, he's real. And I followed his career for the next couple of years until he then retired. Um, so, yeah, Space Jam is my number one. Independence Day is my number two, a movie we will discuss in detail, maybe in the not too distant future. Shout out Will Smith. Shout out Jeff Goldblum. Shout out the greatest cinematic presidential speech ever. I know that will be a conversation we have in a couple of weeks, um, but independent. Oh, yeah, we got to do best hype, spe- hype, best hype up speeches. 100 percent on board. Yeah, 100 percent will be um, good category. Number three is Fargo for all the reasons you mentioned. Number four is Jerry Maguire for all the reasons you mentioned. And then no Mission Impossible. I was shocked by on your list. I I will say I like the first Mission Impossible, but I think the modern like four, five, six Mission Impossibles Mm -hmm. are so much better than one that it just it's it's hard for me to get all that fired up about. When am I nine or am I seven Seven is coming? When am I seven comes out? Seven's November. When that comes out, we'll probably do a Mission Impossible. I honestly probably do either four or six for that that movie. But I think that's right. Um, going into it, I'm I'm curious where one ranks because I think it does it does hold up a little bit. It doesn't have a lot of the insane Tom Cruise stuntmanness that exists in the, the franchise now, but like it still has the high wire act and him dropping in to from the ceiling like that's still a, a very tension filled sequence that that i enjoy um, i agree with that so do you not have a lot of honorable mentions here i i have like six honorable mentions this is okay. a much this I is think a we much can then quickly go back and forth i don't i've we've mentioned a couple in the past bound i mentioned two weeks ago on the wachowskis pod um the only other one <laughs> so you mentioned meta movies have you ever seen the movie and we actually kind of hinted at a a, a what it's parodying last week in Boys to the Hood. Have you ever seen the Wayans Brothers movie, Don't Be a Menace to South Central While Drinking Your Juice in the Hood? I have seen that movie. Okay. My mom is an avid listener of this podcast. Shout out to my mom. She started like texting me these long threads of like my response to your Matrix pod, my response to your Encanto pod, which like warms my heart when I hear it. That's probably, amazing. She probably, probably thinks I'm a... Dirt bag. No, she loves. She agrees with a lot of your opinions, <laughs> which is the best part about it. Is that I end up defending myself in like, how dare you not love Encanto, Andrew? What's wrong with you? Um, so a part of it might be that she's been in quarantine for the last two weeks and is needed to <laughs> just have something to do and it's listen to his, her son's pod. And so when I was a kid, my friends at school mentioned "Don't Be a Menace" this, this movie. And I went and bought it on DVD. I rode my bike to like a local DVD, like a blockbuster, but not blockbuster. It actually sold DVDs. And I bought this movie, hid it under my bed. And it was like my secret. I have a bad movie in my room. And then I went away to summer camp and came back. And my parents, as a surprise, while I was gone those two weeks, went and gave me a whole room makeover. Like they got me a new bed, a new desk, a new TV, a new everything. And I walked in and my first thought wasn't, oh, my gosh, you guys got me a whole new like setup in my room. It was, oh, no, you guys found the movie that was under my bed. <laughs> and of course, it led to a conversation. And then my mom watching that movie by herself. So shout out, mom. <laughs> we, we laugh at that nowadays, which, you know, is good to finally be able to laugh at it. Um, all right. Do you have any honorable mentions you want to actually mention or do you want to go back and forth real quick? I'll say I I agree with your Independence Day and Mission Impossible. Mm-hmm. I, I think they're important blockbusters. I love loved Independence Day in the moment. I just 
I last watched it until February. I last watched it uh, when the <laughs> very bad sequel was coming out, and it's just it's just lost a little bit of the luster for me. It's so long. I will we'll save the conversation mm-hmm. here. Uh, but Independence Day is an honorable mention. Uh, let's go back and forth. I'll say I, I'll say the the best of these blockbuster disaster movies that didn't make my list, and that's Twister. Would be my clear number. Yeah, six. that was gonna be that was gonna be a nice one. Philip Seymour um, Hoffman's in that movie. Yes, he is. Um, Swingers. Uh, Swingers is fine. Yeah, I have no. I have no, uh, Secrets and Lies, the Mike Lee movie. Happy Gilmore. Of course. Uh, when we were kings, <laughs> the very good boxing. Uh, I should have said when we were kings. This is gonna be my next one. Um, Primal Fear. Really. Oh, the twist was very effective the first time I saw it. Okay. I, I, I feel embarrassed that I'm even going to say this one. I, I don't, I don't feel good about it. I don't, I, uh, the English patient. I, I've never seen it. Never will. <laughs> You'll, you can live a perfectly fine life and Thank never you. see it. You, you took the billet for both of us. Just like, <laughs> I'm, I am Elaine watching the English patient one day is what I'll say. Um, so this is, I think, a very clear drop off. Oh, it's bad. I think we might have even dropped off a while ago. Oh, wait, there's one movie I like. There is a good one. 12 Monkeys. Is 12 Monkeys? I thought that was 97, but if it's 96, I'll agree with you. That's 97. Fuck. Hold on. It is. No, it's 95. God damn it. 95. Limited limited release 95. Yep. Damn. Came up when we were talking about Toy Story. Um, So then I'll I'll say The Nutty Professor. Oh, my God. Really? Again, clear drop off. I actually like, like Nutty Professor 2, The Clumps, better. So here's one that I had on VHS that I watched a number of times. And I, I perhaps best remember for um, Arnold Schwarzenegger shooting an alligator and then mm-hmm. saying, you're leather or something like that. Or, uh, and that's that's uh, Eraser, which is quite a bad movie. Uh-huh. Um, I think this might be my last one, to be completely honest. Um, I, I can't fault that. I'll just say this. Now imagine she's white. A Time to Kill, the Matthew McConaughey <laughs> movie with Samuel L. Jackson. I think this is the movie that taught me about white supremacy and that the KKK wasn't just something you learn about. And cause you got the Kiefer Sutherland character. That yeah. 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 Like a legitimate Nazi in the KKK. And I, like you learn in a private conservative high school or grade school that, Oh, this happened back then. Not realizing that that shit still exists. So I'll give the movie credit for that. The very heavy handed script is not, it, it turns it into a comedy more than anything else. Towards the end, although, yes, they deserve to die and I hope they burn in hell. The Samuel Jackson line is much better done when Dave Chappelle is making fun of him (laughs) in Chappelle show. Uh, But there, that'll be my last one. A time to kill. You know, you know what? I missed one that I quite like. I think the ghost in the darkness is Mm -hmm. a is a rather good movie about lions hunting construction workers or something like that. Yeah. It's a ludicrous premise, but it, that that's a pretty good movie. And I like rumble in the Bronx, the Jackie Chan. Oh, movie. Yeah. Good call. Good call. And then we just wrap up with is scream, a top five film of the nineties. Yep. No, me neither. Okay. There we zero points for that category. Hi, this is Gail Weathers with an exclusive eyewitness account of this amazing breaking story. Several more local teens are dead, bringing to an end the harrowing mystery of the mass killings that has terrified this peaceful community, like the plot of some scary movie. It all began with the scream over 911 and ended in a bloodbath that has rocked the town of Whitworth. All played out here in this peaceful farmhouse, far from the crimes and the sirens of the larger cities that its residents have fled. Okay, let's take it back to the Come on, move it. This is my big shot. All right, Oz, what were your 
what is your final score after our final review of Scream? Uh, for Wes Craven, first place. For the triumvirate of Campbell, Cox, and Arquette, it's first place. Uh, for Irwin, it's zero points because he didn't <laughs> finish the movie. Uh, third for Marco Beltrani, uh, not scoring for horror. First place for 90s horror. Third place for slashers. Second, or, sorry. Um, yep. Yeah, third place for slashers. Fourth place for meta. And third place for 1996, zero for the 90s. A total score, 26 out of 50. Oh, shit. All right. More on that in just a second. Um, so my score for uh, for Wes Craven, it's number two. For the cast, it's my number one. For Mark Irwin, it's my number two. For Beltrami, my number two. And then it doesn't score for horror. Um, 90, oh, 90s horror, it's my number one. For slasher, it doesn't score. For meta films, it's my number two. And then doesn't score for the 90s and 96, which gives me a score also of a 26 out of 50. Um, the more I think about it, being right in the middle of the Pantheon is like perfect for this movie. And look, it's hard to find a more influential film in the 90s to its genre then like when we did the Toy Story innovation uh, category, I, you wonder if Scream actually could have like been part of that as well for how it recharged the 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 slasher, not even just slasher, but the horror industry as a whole. Um, your score on Letterboxd out of 10. It can have a 10. It can have a 10. OK, I I don't know if this is something you want me to say again, but if I have to watch Matthew Lillard's tongue. I think that alone, I would dock it down to a nine. But like, look, if you want to say it's a 10 with with like tiny flaws, fine. If you want to say it's a nine, but closer to a perfect film, it's like a perfect nine than you can for me. Um, there, there is no perfect film. I, I hate the, right. my, my I think my standards are lower than yours. A 10 is like for me, it's like the handful of best movies in a given year. Some years it's like four movies. Some years it's like 15 movies, whatever. It's the movies that I think the highest of in a given year. Okay. I, I think I'm I'm too calculated and nerdy when it comes to that shit where I'm like the this is a nine and this is an eight this is a seven you know it's just what some of that comes down to your mood when you see the movie it's just so hard to to suss out I get it I get it um anything about scream you want to say before we get out of here I for one am excited for scream five which I'll be seeing in a day or two and uh, in a theater in a theater uh and I'm excited to see i think it's the ready or not directors who've taken over the franchise that movie is fucking awesome if you haven't mm -hmm. seen it i would strongly recommend it so uh yeah i'm super excited to see what happens with the next scream so what's like to plug before we get out of here uh come to the invention of dreams.com uh yeah we're, we're just set set our viewership readership records all that stuff good things so come read the work we're doing there and uh follow me on twitter at oz on movies thank you there you go. You follow me on Twitter at Andrew J. Claudio underscore. Follow the podcast at Final Review Pod. We have a fun slate, at least beginning slate of 2022 that I think you're going to enjoy. Uh, looking forward to a fun new year. Hopefully a safe new year as well as we're all. Uh, my booster is tomorrow. Oz, so I'll be, be able to hopefully have a little more protection when I do the thing that you'd like me to keep doing, which is go to movie theaters. Um, but we appreciate all the support and look forward to forward to a fun year. And as always, thank you for listening and tune in next time for another final review. Sound of the 
from the drama. Music hit your heart, cause I, I know, know you got soul. during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.